Today, I am joined by Keith Jackowicz. Uh, this is Artifact number 21, and we're going to be talking about Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Galapagos. This is actually the, the third book that I'm doing on this channel by uh, Kurt Vonnegut. So first one, I believe uh, it was uh, Keith and I, we did Cat's Cradle. Then I did Breakfast of Champions with uh, Jill. Now we're doing Galapagos uh, here. I feel like I keep like dancing around the elephant in the room, which is... Um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, right? That is his his best book. I feel like uh, a show on that would would probably uh, go the longest, simply because there's so much to discuss. But uh, thankfully, there's also a lot to discuss in, in Galapagos, right? It's it's an interesting text. It's pretty underrated uh, because I, you know, I just sort of assumed that uh, Vonnegut kind of fell off in in the late seventies or, or eighties and just didn't really produce much of value after that. But Galapagos is is on par, you know, at least with some of the kind of uh, uh, early uh, classics, if you want to call them classics, like Mother Night. Um, maybe not as good as uh, as his best books, but still pretty worthwhile. Um, so this is this is what we're going to be doing here. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, Keith, if you want to like introduce the text or do some kind of synopsis. I mean, there's a few different ways that we, we could tackle it, right? I mean, one of, the, one of the interesting things about this book is it's even more kind of convoluted in terms of plot than something like Cat's Cradle, right? Even though Cat's Cradle also has a, any number of like convolutions. And, um, but, but like Galapagos is, it's, it's really kind of uh, uh, disjointed, right? In the sense that uh, things are being communicated right as they are meaning like humanity a million years after the fact this is what they look like you know in this kind of you know post-evolutionary uh phase maybe they sort of like stop developing at a certain point and, and and things are just kind of you know prehistoric again we don't totally get get a sense of that but it tends to kind of go um you know like back and forth very slowly these like details of the plot get revealed to you so you know little things that maybe don't make sense like a, a stray statement or a, a stray comment from Vonnegut um they they do kind of like open up as the book goes on and I I, I do think even more so than maybe some of his other books it's definitely a, a book that does get better uh, as the book goes on right um you could like open up uh, Slaughterhouse Five and pretty much from the first either the preface or even like the first, like, you know, proper chapter, let's call it. Um, you could tell like right away from the first line, first paragraph that it's going to be, you know, uh, probably a very good book. Right. Uh, because the, the writing is just so kind of uh, it's, 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 um, you know, it's, it's, it's poetic. It's interesting here. A lot of it is a lot more prosaic. Um, there's a lot mm -hmm. more description, right. There's a lot less dialogue in this, in this novel compared to, you know, frankly, uh, maybe most of his books, Right. So, um, you know, a, a lot more kind of physical description and you could you could call uh, the ghost character, right? Leon uh, Trotsky uh, uh, Trout. Leon Trout. Yeah, Leon, it's Leon Trotsky it's Trout, right? The full the full name. Is Trotsky the, the original last name of the Trout family? I can't. Remember. No, I, I, I think that's just his middle name of the book. Leon Trotsky Trout. Oh, I don't I. I don't 
maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's Leon Trotsky Trout, which is like, um, I'm not exactly sure if that's supposed to be like a comet of, of some sort or, you know, an anti-symbol of some sort in the sense of like, it, it seems to want to be a symbol, but it's just kind of like a red herring, right? Where you, you mm-hmm. can keep going down the, the wrong track, but um, anyway, uh, I feel like I, I talked enough uh, here. Maybe maybe you could uh, say a few words by way of introduction about, about the text. Uh, well, uh, this text is Kurt Vonnegut's uh, most enduring and interesting contribution to decolonization theory, mm-hmm. uh, positing that we will uh, evolve into a uh, species re- more closely resembling seals than humans and be mostly descended from the last remnants of a uh, genocided indigenous tribe mm-hmm. in South America. Uh, it's an, an, an interesting choice, but uh, no, it's a, it, it is, it feels a lot like a last book to me, actually. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that he had two more proper novels and one novel memoir hybrid after this and a bunch of short story collections because uh, I mean, you can't psychologize someone from a book, but it certainly not, I mean, it not only suggests like a certain frustration with humanity itself on Vonnegut's part, like almost a, a terminal frustration, but it's also in terms of possible endings to Kurt Vonnegut's like shared universe that a lot of his books uh, like God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater and uh, Slaughterhouse Five and this book and Breakfast of Champions and then Bluebeard after this, uh, which I don't think he should have done anything else in this universe after this. Uh, it's sort of, you know, in, the, in this world of, you know, kind of sl- pitiable uh, and often stupid, but, uh, you know, simple and also often sweet people, uh, you know, the idea that it will all just sort of end in chaos and end in humanity, basically reverting to a, a, a state matching its actual simplicity that the neuroses and boredom of people inflate to, you know, world destroying proportions. Uh, I mean, it does feel like a very uh, poetic and uh, appropriate ending to, I guess, Kurt Vonnegut's literary stamp on the world, you know, it's sort of, it, it uh, seems kind of a shame to me that there were other books after this, but to just describe the book a little bit, uh, it is the story, it's almost, it's kind of similar to the, you ever seen the movie Red before? Um, oh, the it, what, 1980s movie? Yeah, the the movie by the by by Kieslowski that was the last movie in the uh, blue oh, white the, red oh, trilogy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I remember when our mutual friend Dan Schneider reviewed that movie. He said it's a little pat that all these interesting people were on this boat that mm-hmm. sank at the end of the movie, but you can maybe you you can sort of just like justify it as like you know, that's kind of the reason that you, that this crash would be interesting at all as if these people were themselves interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is a little bit of the same thing where it is essentially the story of a a shipwreck, uh, no, no, not a shipwreck, a, a ship breakdown of a group of people in the Galapagos Islands in the year 1986 uh, uh, that happens as a result of a, in uh, a, a global economic crisis 
that leads to food riots in the country of Ecuador, where most of the, the diegetic present, I guess none of it is present day technically, but where most of the action uh, takes place uh, and they flee from it in a boat that has been stripped clean of uh, all of its equipment and all of its uh, rations. And so the, these people end up on this island uh, and they end up stranded there the rest of their lives because the rest of society ends up breaking down as a result of a, he says bacteria really probably should be virus because bacteria are pretty killable actually as a result of this microorganism that develops that ends up destroying the fertility of every woman on the planet. So civilization everywhere but on this island collapses. And so these people end up being the last human beings and building a little society. And the society, because of the relative lack of uh, sophisticated resources that are available to these people and the specific survival needs over the course of a million years ends up with these humans evolving into uh, I, I guess simpler organisms more more similar to like chimpanzees but with the qualities of like seals or walruses with like mm -hmm. leathery skin and fur uh, and the whole thing is told from the perspective of Leon Trout who is the son of Kurt Vonnegut's erstwhile uh, sci-fi writer uh, you know sort of self-insert but sort of not character uh, Kilgore Trout who most people will know from Breakfast of Champions but who's also mentioned in God Bless You Mr. Rosewater uh, and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five as well and maybe some other books as well. I yeah some other books too. Yeah uh, who has as a result of his uh, eminent curiosity about his fellow human beings declined an invitation to go to the afterlife and so is trapped on the planet for one million years to watch this uh, evolution happen in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of a hard book to give a synopsis of. Like you could write something on a dust jacket that is suggestive, but yeah. it, you're, you're right when you say it's one of the most tangential books that he's ever written in that it sort of goes off in every direction and follows almost every character to at least a mild degree. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess you could say it's the the life stories and circumstances of the people that ended up on this boat that came to this island and the sort of improbable series of circumstances that would have had to happen for any humans to survive this fertility destroying microorganism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 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 oh, you, uh, you want ahead. to continue? Right. Yeah. I mean, in, no, in, ter ahead. in terms of us summarizing, uh, the, the text i mean what makes it difficult is you see like little like slivers of a character right you see like um you know a little uh bit of who this person is um and uh just more details are filled in kind of like as we go right and he, you know uh, he intentionally uh, seems to leave uh, well you know I, I can't say intentionally but it does seem intentional to me uh like certain details aren't fully kind of uh, uh, fleshed out and certain things are missing, right? Like in terms of um, if you want to like, like, like uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but nothing is explicitly stated about uh, the level of complexity 
right? In, in this like new uh, society of these like aquatic sort of human beings, right? Um, we know that perhaps they are like less intelligent, maybe. We know uh, for a fact that they're like less willing to be, uh, you know, like they're, 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 not, they're not liars in the way that human beings are liars, right? That's the sort of the implication, right? Um, in, in terms of like Kurt Vonnegut's idea about like the, the big brain, right? The big brain is what's causing all these problems for humanity. And now we have simpler creatures with like smaller brains. Uh, we don't know whether there's like some sort of like enduring civilization or whether these are just kind of, you know, animals that are doing kind of like more typical animal things. Um, and uh, we also don't get any specifics about like, you know, we know there's like some sort of global financial crisis, but we don't know what it is. We don't know what causes it. Uh, we, you know, we don't know the reason behind it, which I think actually is, is a pretty good idea, right? We know that um, these things will always kind of balloon and they will always uh, explode or implode as it were. Um, and we don't really need to know exactly what the specifics are. We just need to know that there's most likely a human brain that's involved and makes it happen in the way that it happens, right? So uh, the, the fact that these kinds of details aren't truly revealed, you know, I, I think it really uh, sheds a, a light and it, it kind of is mutually reinforcing of some of the kind of deeper uh, thematic questions in the text, right? Yeah, well, I, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut himself was, I mean, I don't think he was ever a professional anthropologist, but he has training in the field of anthropology. Yeah. And so a lot of his books, they sort of, they have the quality of like uh, a ghost or an alien uh, engaging in like anthropological description of human beings and their ways and their doings. Uh, and he, he gets to that in this book by this, you know, million year old ghost character. But uh, there is a passage at some point in the book, very nice uh, little summation where he said, well, you know, just you, suddenly everybody, uh, you know, these, these, these creatures with their big brains, they just, they just needed to have opinions about things, even things that they probably didn't need to have opinions about. Mm. And uh, just sometimes they just all changed their opinions about what certain things were worth and uh what they were going to do economically with one another and, yeah yeah and yeah and, stuff, and, and so. those are the terms in which that he describes the financial crisis which i thought was like a very nice technique right at some point he basically yeah. says um uh so i mean i guess it's jumping up a little bit i want to start with chapter one but like just to, to stay with this uh in chapter five uh so when he's discussing the financial crisis um He's, ba he's basically making these allusions to the big brain and, and the fact that human beings, because they're so kind of fickle, right, in their opinions, they just decided one day that paper money wasn't worth anything, right? Um, and uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was something like this. So like Mexico and Chile and Brazil and Argentina were likewise bankrupt. In Indonesia and the Philippines and Pakistan and India and Thailand and Italy and Ireland and Belgium and Turkey. Whole nations were suddenly in the same situation as the San Mateo, unable to buy with their paper money and coins or their written promises to pay later, even the barest essentials. Persons with anything life-sustaining to sell, fellow citizens as well as foreigners were refusing to exchange their goods for money. They were suddenly saying to people with nothing but paper representations of wealth, wake up, you idiots. Whatever made you think that paper was so valuable? 
right? Um, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, like it, it's 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 it, it, and the the thing that's that makes this technique so good uh, from you know like a purely kind of like artistic standpoint is in the fact that again he's being non-specific about the, the reasons for the crisis, but it doesn't really matter because you know every single time it's even if like the specifics are different the underlying cause right human intervention you know that sort of remains and there is something to be said for this idea of like you know uh uh, uh an opinion suddenly arising that paper money is no longer good right because i mean if you think of like fiat currency you know the the fiat comes from a, a government promise Right, a government being able to tax its citizenry is, you know, able to have a, a productive uh, workforce of some kind, able to have like an educated population, all those things. Right, if you think of like debt, right, debt, you know, has a, a long history uh, of being used as money. Right, it's not just like modern complex like cut up securities right? Or like collateralized debt, debt that you could buy or whatever. It, it's not, it, it doesn't even have to be like complex financial instruments, right? Debt has been used as money. People have been operating under this assumption for, you know, at minimum many, many centuries, if not longer, right? Likely to go back even like to ancient mm -hmm. Greece, you're going to find some examples of this, but this is some something that people are operating under and something occurs, right? Where they no longer, uh, you know, accept that a country can fulfill its promises when like oftentimes that's kind of like, you know, that often is, 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 is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If a bunch of people do decide that this country is no longer good is no longer able to you know function like that, that that's always strikes me as a kind of collective decision that a world always makes it's not necessarily reflective of reality like when um you know when uh 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 europe basically you know essentially ganged up on on uh, on, on 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 uh greece right during the 2008 crisis right they started like blaming Greece for, you know, like li living beyond its means and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, everybody gets together. They start applying, well, specifically Germany, right? Start applying these like you know, strict sort of austerity measures. And things do sort of take on this quality. And we don't know if this is exactly what's happening here. But, I mean, the possibilities are, are, are open. Uh, and you do get the sense as the book goes on that a lot of this behavior is very self-fulfilling, right? These are self-fulfilling prophecies. And this is what people are doing, right? Human beings are responsible for this. This, this isn't just some sort of random thing that happens, you know, in nature, right? This is, this is what we do. Um, and also just this kind of like running away from, from responsibility, right? This, this idea that nobody ever really wants to uh, uh, admit Right. To what extent their interventions are, are creating these issues? Well, yeah, also. And I mean, we know that Kurt Vonnegut was some kind of a leftist. You know, I, I, I don't think he would have called himself like a Marxist or anything like I that. Think he, I think he did call himself a socialist or something. He might have. Yeah, I, well, I, I, my guess is that he probably would have identified more with like the sort of anarchistic sphere of socialism. Yeah. Uh, and especially uh, that's a trend that I find in a lot of anthropologists, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because that's just kind of what they see in the historical record as a way that people have lived that has worked in the past. Uh, so, you, I mean, th th this is a bit more of a stretch, and I don't know if this would have been conscious on his part, but there is like an implicit uh, critique there also of the switch to like 
marginalism as like the primary understanding of like value and and like transfer of, of goods and services because mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, I mean in the, at the beginnings of capitalism's development as a as an economic system even Adam Smith would have agreed with Karl Marx that uh, labor was the thing that creates value and it's not necessarily wrong to bring uh, like marginal utility into the picture but when it becomes, the only uh, when it becomes re- like really the 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 focal point of your entire analysis, you are taking it away from like collective human considerations, and you are putting it in the hands of something much more fickle, which is an opinion that is informed by uh, metrics and algorithms that may or may not have anything to do with actual like flesh and blood, living, breathing human beings that are right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I mean, you maybe can't say that it's a, that it's, I, I mean, you, you know, every leftist is very boring when they try to make everything about how capitalism is bad. But I mean, there is, you, you can certainly bring that angle into it, especially knowing that probably Kurt Vonnegut would have been at least somewhat sympathetic to an argument like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, but you, you said you wanted to start with chapter one. Yeah, I mean, I, I just always like to give people like a sense of um, what an, mm-hmm. an introduction feels like. And, you know, also like just, just this idea that, um, I mean, you need to have good beginnings, you need to have good endings, right? And, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it does sort of uh, set the tone. Um, and so like also like the book is set up into like, uh, I think altogether it's something like 50 or so chapters, but it is two parts. Uh, the first, the first one is book one. The thing was, and the second uh, one is, I think it's the thing became. No, and, and the thing became is the second part, right? So, um, and he he sort of like uses that as the beginning uh, line, right, for both of the books. So the thing was uh, begins with the line: the thing was one million years ago, back in 1986 AD. Okay, uh, Guayaquil was the chief seaport of the little South American democracy of Ecuador, whose capital was Quito, high in the Andes Mountains. Guayaquil was two degrees south of the equator, the imaginary belly band of the planet after which the country itself was named. It was always very hot there, and humid too, for the city was built in the doldrums, and a springy marsh through which the mingled waters of several rivers draining the mountains flowed. This seaport was several kilometers from the open sea. Rafts of vegetable matter often clogged the soupy waters, engulfing pilings and anchor lines. Um, and I mean, e- even here, right? So this is like a level of description that is usually not present in Kurt Vonnegut. And you're getting like little, like he's throwing out little things that sort of take on more and more significance, right? As the book goes on, right? This, this like rafts of vegetable matter are often clogging the soupy waters, Right, this like vegetable matter later on becomes a kind of like metaphor for human beings and human existence. Also, at some point, um, you have like a character, Mary Hepburn, who when the captain gets upset that she's like using a sperm, she says something like, I could have, you know, if, if I could have, you know, done this through like, you know, um, the, the birds or like, uh, I think at some point she says something like the, 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 the these like rafts like I, we could have used that too right so these like little objects right they 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 sort of become 
things that Kurt Vonnegut uses, right? And he kind of, he throws them at you in ways are, that are unexpected. Like later on uh, in the book, he uses uh, Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony, right? As this kind of, you know, like black humor, right? Um, when somebody mm -hmm. dies, uh, the, the joke is someone says, well, you know, it's not like he would have uh, composed uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right? And um, even in that little uh, description of the financial crisis, um, uh, he he says something like, you know, in the financial crisis was as a result of uh, the big brain as, as Beethoven's right Ninth Symphony, right? So all these things take on a significance that you only really get to see as the book goes on, a, and also you start noticing them come at you. Uh, earlier on like if you reread it right um so uh, uh the beginning is just kind of like throwing all these details out to you so he continues human beings had much bigger brains back then than they do today and so they could be beguiled by mysteries one such mystery in 1986 was how so many creatures which could not swim great distances had reached the galapagos islands an archipelago of volcanic peaks due west of guayaquil separated from the mainland by 1,000 kilometers of very deep water, very cold water fresh from the Antarctic. When human beings discovered those islands, there were already geckos and iguanas and rice rats and lava lizards and spiders and ants and beetles and grasshoppers and mites and ticks and residents, not to mention enormous land tortoises. What form of transportation had they used? Many people were able to satisfy their big brains with this answer. They came on natural rafts. Other people argue that such rafts became waterlogged and rotted to pieces so quickly that nobody had ever seen one out of sight of land and that the current between the islands and the mainland would carry any such rustic vessel northward rather than westward. Or they asserted that all those landlubberly creatures had walked dry shot across a natural bridge or had swum short distances between stepping stones and that one such formation or another had since disappeared beneath the waves. But scientists using their big brains and cunning instruments had by 1986 made maps of the ocean floor. There wasn't a tra trace, they said, of an intervening landmass of any kind. Other people back in that era of big brains and fancy thinking asserted that the islands had once been part of the mainland and had been split off by some stupendous catastrophe. But the islands didn't look as though they had been split off from anything. They were clearly young volcanoes which had been vomited up right there where they were. Many of them were such newborns out there that they could be expected to blow again at any time. Back in 1986, they hadn't even sprouted much coral yet, and so were there with, without blue lagoons and white beaches, amenities many human beings used to regard as foretastes of an ideal afterlife. A million years later, they do possess white beaches and blue lagoons. But when this story begins, they were still ugly humps and domes and cones and spires of lava, brittle and abrasive, whose cracks and pits and bowls and valleys brimmed over not with rich topsoil or sweet water, but with the finest, driest volcanic ash. Another theory back then was that God Almighty had created all those creatures where the explorers found them, so they had no need for transportation. Another theory was that they had been shooed ashore there by two by two down the gangplank of Noah's Ark. If there really was a Noah's Ark, and there may have been, I might entitle my story, A Second Noah's Ark. Um, so yeah, like all, all, all this stuff gets thrown at you right away. Again, the most kind of 
uh, purely descriptive and philosophical intro of, of the ones that come to mind immediately from Kurt Vonnegut for me. Um, but you know, there's also this at the end, this kind of like biblical layer, which I find, uh, I mean, there's, there's a few things you could say about her, right? Because, um, you know, first of all, like you could, you could ask yourself like, okay, is there some sort of like, uh, moral lesson here right um in, in the sense that if you think of like you know the, the the biblical story of noah's uh ark and the flood uh noah is supposed to be a righteous man that that god uh separates from everyone else right in terms of his righteousness and says i will save you and everyone else can die uh so you know let's let's save the world uh, uh together right by building the, this ark and we're gonna uh, put you and and you know all these animals uh, into it um but of course like when you kind of like par like if you're not a christian right or you're not a jew and you're just kind of you know like a, a, a an everyday kind of modern person you parse that story out and it's not exactly clear what exactly is you know god's righteousness there really mean where what exactly is it coming from what is the point is this not rather an example of cr- cruelty um, and, and I, I, th- I think it's just applicable here, right? Because if you want to assume there is some kind of biblical overlap, right, which, uh, the, the narrator here, uh, suggests, right, explicitly, um, I, I think it's much closer to, you know, a, a more modern interpretation of, of, uh, uh, Noah's flood than anything else, because, um, you know, there, there's nothing actually here that selects these people to go on this ship. And being the kind of, you know, the, the, the creators of, of humanity, right, going forward, right? Um, there's nothing, like, especially moral about them. There's, there's nothing especially necessarily good. In fact, like, at least one of the characters is, is a sociopath, right? We have um, uh, Tom. Uh, is it Tom or is it uh, Wait? What is his first name? Oh, James Wait. Yeah, James Wait. So, you know, James Wait is a sociopath. Uh, he makes it on this, like, Noah's Ark. We have Mary Hepburn, who's, you know, who's, who seems like a, a good person, right? She makes it on this arc. Uh, we have this, like, captain who doesn't know how to, you know, uh, command this ship, who's just living this kind of, it seems like a gluttonous, self-absorbed life. You have some, you know, random uh, 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 tribal girls from this, like, Native American tribe that was uh, slowly being uh, killed off in Ecuador, Um uh, so they make it on, right? There, there's, there's no, there's no God, right? Like, like, like God becomes this kind of like element of chance, essentially in this book, nothing really, uh, 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 commands these people to go on it, but it just so happens that way. And so much of the book is about this kind of happenstance of evolution in the sense of like, there can't truly be a de-evolution in any way, because, evolution merely you know just takes what is best for survival and fuck the rest right everything else doesn't matter all it is is about you know survival and the passing on of genetic material right well the the sec the second you know object is the true object right the passing on genetic material and to the extent that your survival helps that out right then your survival can be extended too um and you know there's this like element of randomness right you cannot have a de-evolution because the goal never changes. The goal is always fixed. That goal is the passing on of genetic material, right? Um, and, and same thing here, right? There's this random, you know, set of events that occur essentially um, that that really, you know, just kind of like put humanity on this like uh, sh- a straight and narrow path, 
right? That it ends up taking in this area. So, you know, it's an interesting use uh, of the Bible, primarily because, um, you know, again, as modern people, we will have a, a, a very different view of Noah's flood, right? Than, than perhaps, um, you know, uh, readers from centuries prior. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, in some ways you can see it as like, Vonnegut kind of maybe correcting the parts of the Bible that mm -hmm. that one could be uncomfortable with, you know, just the wanton genocide and destruction of almost all life on the planet. You know, in this case, it's only humans that are killed and they are killed, I mean, essentially by something that we now know after a year and a half of pandemic is it like is at least a little bit the human's fault, you mm -hmm. know, because we know that most viruses or bacteria that we're going to come into contact with that are going to be novel and that are going to harm us in this way are probably going to be things that either we were fucking around in a laboratory or we were engaging in destruction of nature and coming into contact with parts of nature that allow for zoonotic spillover to happen. So whatever, wherever this microorganism that kills, that destroys human fertility comes from, it's something that in all likelihood, we had at least a uh, decent hand in uh, introducing into ourselves. And if you think about who actually reaches the island and not who's on the ark, you can maybe say that the selection process is not specifically righteousness, but maybe like a certain degree of blamelessness, I guess. You know, the, the, the only person that's like an outright pretty bad person that reaches the island is is the captain is uh adolf von kleitz uh but he is not really like a mover or a player in like the things that you know he he's kind of like the what what you know there's it's implied that there's like one of these german brothers that is at the head of this business that is like a big deal Mm -hmm. You know, that is like the most dedicated. And then they there is uh, Siegfried von, uh, von Kleitz, right? I'm saying the, yeah. the right last name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who is kind of the, the most slackerish brother that they make go work in this hotel in Guayaquil. Uh, just so that he is contributing in some way to their financial empire. And then this guy seems to not really be involved in the business as much as he's like the schmoozer. You know, he's the one that goes and shakes hands and goes to the parties and is kind of charming in a superficial way. But he's not the one guy in the same way that he's not the one that was supposed to actually pilot the ship when the cruise was happening. He's not the one that's actually piloting the company. He's just sort of like the amicable face of it. And everyone else, you know, Mary Hepburn is essentially as much a victim of this like economic uh, downturn that's happening as anybody else. Although in her case, it's a localized economic downturn that happened because of uh, outsourcing and uh, automation of a lot of the jobs at the local plant that caused her husband to be fired. Uh, you have these four children that are these starving orphans that they're, uh, they're, they're reclusive, uh, uh, jungle dwelling tribe has been it's not implied if it's on purpose or an accident but you know exterminated from the planet by these uh, multinational corporations dropping pesticide on the jungle presumably so they can turn it into mm -hmm. some sort of productive arable farmland uh, and you have this Japanese woman who 
is the son of someone that Vonnegut clearly has some degree of, if not disdain for it, then at least like intense skepticism. Uh, you know, the, the, this guy who is going to help, you know, create this machinery that's going to push more people out of jobs and make more exploitation of the planet possible and cause more dehumanization. Uh, and he's killed before he even gets on the boat. Uh, you have the the blind girl that makes it to the island that is basically just the daughter of this sociopathic, uh, or, or sorry, it says pathological, this like, you know, the, this pathological multi-billionaire uh, who has, in the midst of a financial crisis, wants to buy up most of Ecuador, or at least as much of it as he can obtain, and then sell it back to the people or rent it back out to the people, essentially. And he's also murdered uh, before he ever gets on the boat. Uh, and then there is... Uh, who is there anybody else that makes it to the island besides that? Um, I, I made a list of characters to get through. Uh, so, um, and oh, James Waite is uh, oh, what I was gonna say is James Waite is on the boat, yeah, but he dies before they actually reach the island. Yeah, he does have a heart in attack. Fact, in, in fact, the only version of him that makes it to the island is the the good person that he pretends to be that Mary Hepburn carries with her in her heart for the rest of her life for, for whatever reason. She was so, so struck by this man's seeming generosity in a, in a moment of turmoil. Uh, and, and she forms a connection with his uh, false presentation of himself that, you know, for the rest of her life, she can say that she was married to two good men. Uh-huh. What was that? Sorry. I just killed an insect. It was a spider's not an insect, but it was a spider. Oh, I don't it's like a, killing spiders, but when they're on me, all bets are off. It, it especially remind, remind, reminds me of uh, to kill a morning spider because I don't kill yeah. spiders either. Um, yeah, I don't kill them in general. Uh, my wife makes me sometimes because she hates spiders. Uh, but if I can, if I can preserve it, uh, and get it to a safe place, I, I will absolutely. Oh, do, do, that, do, but, do, you have, do you have a bug cup? Uh, no, I just use whatever I have available to me. Usually yeah. a piece of paper and a Tupperware container. I put, I put out a very interesting bug uh, a couple days ago. I, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it, 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 its belly looked like a frog's belly. It was like very, seemed like very firm and juicy. You know what I mean? And it was big mm -hmm. and it had wings, but yeah. it wasn't using its wings uh, for any reason. Um, made me a, a very a fearful for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and since, since I ruined the flow here, just an apology to anybody who earlier heard my phone ring on my audio. I forgot to silence it and I had to text my wife to let her know what I was reporting. Uh, so uh, apologies for that. And I don't have a physical copy of the book. I have it on Kindle, but my Kindle, the battery is dead. So if I'm looking at my phone, I'm not being distracted from the conversation i just have uh, that's where the book happens to be for me um and if you're uh listening to this on uh audio podcast right um we are on spotify uh apple google play uh whatever you get your podcast from we're on it um you wouldn't have that uh indignity right of of uh, watching keith go on his phone as we're talking right because he's also trying to tune out the audience not just me um, yes. And apologies if my lighting is poor to anybody watching this on YouTube. I'm, 
I'm currently uh, in the process of gearing up for a move to New York City in a couple of months. Uh, so Alex we'll be we'll be we'll be I'm recording be, these in person. Yes. Well, Alex and I have talked. I'm going to be moving into his house and sleeping in his bed with him and his wife in between the two of them. No, he'll uh, he'll be sleeping on the cat couch with that cat pillow. Yes. There. Right. It's yes, about it's absolutely. about it's about five feet. Right. So Keith is about like uh, six eight. So his uh, his uh, shins will be dangling <laughs> off. We'll put a we'll put a we'll put a fucking card box for his shins. Oh God, I can't even imagine being six eight. I already feel like a behemoth at six three. Yeah, I I remember when uh, when the first time I visited you, my, Lisa and I took a picture together, and Dan said it looks like if it was just our skeletons that somebody found a million years later, they would think it was like two different like ape like ape like two different ape creatures, like they're a different species. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's it's good being 5'8". It's nice. Yes. I wouldn't want to be 6'8". Uh, so, 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 so anyway, what I was saying, I think the, uh, like, I don't know that Vonnegut goes in for righteousness as a virtue as much because he sort of sees everybody as flawed and, and fucked up and kind of consumed by their petty neuroses and insecurities i think what he kind of admires and perhaps wishes to put on his uh his new mount ararat the galapagos islands mm -hmm. is people who were essentially if not decent then at least not particularly responsible for the shabby state of the world that they leave behind mm -hmm. yeah yeah um yeah it's yeah the uh, justice that he can get more behind yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I guess since James' uh, weight doesn't truly make it, uh, you know, onto the island, right, you, you have this, um, you know, th that is also like another little kind of, uh, uh, you know, detail, right, for this, like, Noah's Ark metaphor, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, but, yeah, still, like, we essentially get, you know, the same kind of, you know, it's, it's the same kind of uh, bottleneck effect, um and it also just just as always right just like in the bible there's still this like feeling of there's like an arbitrary feeling to it right um it, it you know in a sense like when, when it comes to evolution uh more or less every bottleneck is arbitrary uh from your vantage right because you as a human being are probably not viewing things necessarily from you know, passing down genetic material, right? We're, we're thinking of like higher thoughts all the time, but you know, from, so from our vantage, it's always going to feel, you know, kind of arbitrary, right? All the kind of choices and, and, and dead ends, right? That natural selection um, uh, tends to make, right? So, and th this obviously is critical for the book, right? Because the, the controlling metaphor, right? Is the big brain, right? It is evolution, right? He, he said that he wanted to, uh, write this book on evolution and part of the reason why it took him so long is he just felt like you know I, i'm not a biologist right which it, it seems it seems kind of odd to me i mean like i uh uh you, you could always use you know uh anything as a controlling metaphor pretty much without necessarily being an expert in it because you as a writer like your your task is to get uh that in essential information out make it somehow like cohere, make it poetic, uh, uh, make it work, make it work, you know, in, in ways beyond like pure detail. Right. But that was, you know, Vonnegut's feeling there. Um, 
So, all right. So, uh, I guess like, so th that was a, a chapter one, right? We're basically given just a set of descriptions. We're giving the philosophy, we're giving the, the skeleton going forward. Once chapter two begins, we're immediately introduced to James Waite, which uh, again, I, I think is a pretty good technique, right? We have a, a almost kind of like purely philosophical and descriptive start that kind of sets things structurally as well. And then in the second chapter, we get um, James Waite, who's, I mean, he, he's interesting to read about, right? Like he's, he's presented as a sociopath and liar, right? Uh, you sort of want to figure out what exactly he gets into. And you also want to see what he'll end up doing to some of these characters, right? Because the way that he's described, um, you know, he's, he, he's someone that could potentially right? If you haven't read the book before, he could, you know, create mayhem for everybody, right? Which is mm -hmm. sort of, it's sort of the implication that we get uh, uh, with his description. But the irony, of course, is that near the end of the book, you know, he ends up doing, I guess, like some positive things, right? He ends up like uh, allowing Mary Hepburn to kind of, you know, uh, marry uh, for uh, a second time to this guy and sort of have him die with these fantasies of him in her own head, right? And she's able mm -hmm. to sort of hold on to them. And um, he's also the one that's like feeding some of the uh, 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 native girls that are just, you know, dying from hunger, right? So these are um, these are the actual kind of substantive interactions that he ends up having uh, with people on the ship, right? He's not really given too much opportunity to create mayhem, partly because, I mean, you know, at that point uh, with like sort of, you know, paper money being valueless and uh, Mary not necessarily having uh, much to give, um, there's not too much room for uh, his kind of like brand of, you know, like, like badness to, to, to percolate through, through this area. But um well, he yeah. also is the reason that they're alive to be on the ship because the fact that he had a heart attack at the perfect moment made them stop at the hospital instead of going all the way to the airport where they probably would have been killed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and it's a, yeah. Very, it's a very Vonnegutian touch that this bad person, you know, ultimately, I, I, I ultimately, and I mean, he probably doesn't, it's weird because Vonnegut would say he's a bad person, but then he would also include all of the sort of extenuating circumstances of his life that make him a bad person. Mm -hmm. You know, he sort of, with most of his characters, he kind of plays on both levels simultaneously where you can judge them interpersonally, but not without understanding, I guess, how they got to the point that they got to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it's very Vanagushian, Vana Vanagutian touch that, you know, this guy uh, who's a, kind of a bad person ends up, you know, being that positive, quote unquote, uh, force in the story where without him being there, a, a worse outcome would have occurred. Yeah. Um, and, and he's an, also an interesting character because like, you know, he is a, a, a bad person, but he, you can also see that like nothing in his life would have prepared him to be a good person. You know, he was the, the product of an incestuous relationship, which already can manifest in genetic or, or psychological defects in, in the offspring of such a pairing. And then he's put in these foster homes where he is consistently abused. There's a scene later in the book where he, uh, uh, where he is embarrassed to take his shirt off in front of a woman 
because he's ashamed of all the scars that are all over his body from all the uh, abuse that he suffered. Uh, and I mean, he just has never been in a position to form like normal human attachments with other people. And so his brain just isn't, you know, his big brain uh, lacking all, all, all of the sort of normal ways that you would interpersonally connect with people can only view them as like objects to have like advantage lean from. Yeah. Um, so, so after like James Wade is, is introduced, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, he, he is nicely sketched out, uh, specifically also in that chapter, but after he gets introduced, uh, we're now back to the kind of like, you know, the overvoice we're back to some of the more kind of like purely thematic content, uh, and, and Vonnegut states, it is hard to believe nowadays that people could ever have been as brilliantly do, do, do a Plicitus as James Waite, until I remind myself that just about every adult human being back then had a brain weighing about three kilograms. There was no end to the evil schemes that a thought machine that oversized couldn't imagine and execute. So I raise this question, although there is nobody around to answer it. Can it be doubted that three kilogram brains were once nearly fatal defects in the evolution of the human race? A second query. What source was there back then, say for our own over-elaborate nervous circuitry, for the evils we were seeing or hearing about simply everywhere? My answer, there was no other source. This was a very innocent planet, except for those great mm -hmm. big brains. Um, I'm not sure if, if uh, like, I'm not sure when this theory uh, came to be, but definitely in the last few decades, uh, uh, one of the ideas like in, in, in evolution is like, well, why, why did human beings like develop their intelligence? Was it, you know, is it to cooperate or is it to trick one another? Right. And of course, like there's like, you know, people that fall into specific camps and they're like, it's primarily to trick or it's primarily to cooperate. Um, I'm not sure if this was a theory that was around or was popular in the eighties, but you know, going, going back to some of the kind of uh, Leonard Schlein art and physics ideas, uh, I think it, it is kind of telling that in this kind of, um, you know, book about human evolution, the thing that Kurt Vonnegut tries to do is he discusses evolution in a way that anticipates some of this kind of like more modern theorizing about the origins of human intelligence. And it seems like, you know, he, he's clearly on the side of, uh, you know, we, we evolved these brains specifically for the purposes of, of tricking one another and, and getting ahead, right? And that was the best way to kind of, you know, pass on genetic material, right? Even more so than, than, than uh, pure cooperation uh, could, could get us. Um, but so like just for the, you know, for anybody listening to this, to just keep in mind, right, we, we start structurally with chapter one we have from the purely philosophical stuff to now just this very nice character sketch of uh, of weight um and then we're ending once again with like a, a brief kind of aside right on some of the more kind of like philosophical elements in the text which i think like so far uh in the book as it's presented as i'm presenting it here uh it's good right it's well done but I do think that later on, um, it does like become a little like a uh, pat, right? And maybe like a little bit repetitive. I'm not sure what your impressions were, but uh, like in, in, in this book, it's about 300 pages or so. 
um, uh, in, in print, I feel like it probably could have been condensed by, you know, maybe like uh, uh, 10 to 20%, right? Because it does, it, it, it does tend to start repeating a lot right as if like it, it's like fearing that i might lose like the controlling metaphor it does tend to dwell on it a lot in in similar language right not necessarily always in like uh, new or fresh iterations right and and yeah. this kind of like starts coming about um more it's like more readily visible right after the first few chapters because you know he he mm -hmm. sets down the structure Right. This is already in your brain. You know exactly what the boundaries and the parameters are, where you could go, where maybe you might not want to go. Um, but instead of really pushing it, it's, it's kind of like it, it does tend to start like repeat some of the same ideas again and again and again. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And I also in terms of things that he overdid, I, I, I would also say that like the sort of. I don't know, I guess the meta fictive aspect of it, the sort of like describing in advance what's going to happen and bracketing mm -hmm. out everybody that's going to die and going back to oh uh you know in the future people are going to be like this but for now oh well they're stuck in this bad situation because of those great big brains like it does uh, it, de it definitely feels like he didn't quite know uh i mean who knows what the original draft of this looked like if it was longer or shorter or whatever but yeah it definitely uh is a little flabby in that way and also I mean, it's it's definitely not an intensely plot-driven book. It's more of a, a, a tangent and character and idea-driven book, but it does take a little bit of the of the tension of the story out the way that he sort of has to constantly hammer everything about the story, like in every you know in almost if not every chapter, then at least like mm -hmm. you know every like ten to twenty-page grouping or whatever. I mean, you can. If he had trouble writing this for whatever reason, he can say it was for, for um, because he did felt like he didn't have a good enough grasp of the biology or whatever, which is weird because there's actually not all that much like biological science in this. It's actually yeah. a pretty straightforward understanding of evolution, even for the time. And uh, you know, it's it's not something he dwelled on very much. So if he could just do that, then it seems maybe more likely that he was struggling like structurally with the book to figure out like what is i guess the appropriate amount of the vonnegut touch you mm -hmm. know like what is the like how much can i tell versus how much should i leave for the reader to, to discover as the as the book is going on you know because it's like if you just spoil everything in every moment of the book then it does you know, it doesn't necessarily make it a worse book as a as an art object, but in terms of like reader investment in it, it is certainly going to take that down a peg. And that is something that he does perfectly in in other books. You know, like in Breakfast of Champions, he you know he spoils that Dwayne Hoover is going to go crazy, but he doesn't necessarily tell you every detail of how that's going to happen. Like at every point in the book before that, you're sort of you're left on the hook wondering, oh, how could that happen? You know, what's going on? And he he's a little too, a little, yeah, like you said, pat, I think is the word. He's a little too, it's not, I mean, it's not egregious. But it's a mm. little too much. It's definitely, yeah. it's one of those books that, uh, a, 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 again, as our, our mutual friend Dan has said, like, you, you can't necessarily learn a lot about writing from, like, the best works that a great artist produces because they're almost, like, hermetically sealed you know, it's kind of hard mm -hmm. to get an in on like how you would come to that idea. 
this, I mean, I would still say it's a great or a near great book, but the fact that it's kind of on the edge means that you can kind of see the seams a little bit more and you can kind of understand uh, like if you were doing something similar to this, how you could change it in yeah. a way that would make it a little bit more effective. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, as I was uh, reading this, I mean, I, I you know, I've been working on uh, this uh, next novel and one of the things I'm doing is, um, you know, like reading this and like seeing that there are scenes that are kind of like, you know, extraneous in some ways, uh, you know, just like superfluous in terms of we've already done this, right? There's no point in going back to it. Uh, I'm just like going, you know, by like you, either stuff that I've written or like, you know, scenes that I've planned. And just like, you know, after reading this book, just like thinking, okay, so what exactly like should I, you know, cut, right? Because if, you're like, I, I need to trust like whatever controlling metaphors that I would have in any book, you need to trust that, right? You need to trust it enough where A, it, do, it does actually work as a controlling metaphor, right? It is like somewhere throughout the book, but B, uh, trusting it means that you're not sort of larding the text like with its presence again and again, especially if it doesn't uh, add, um, you know, a, a not even like anything new, but like a new dimension, even to like old like categories that, that you've gone through. So I'm just thinking like, just imagining this book and you cut about uh, maybe uh, 10 to 20% of it, you're going to get a lot more like poetic implication, right? You're going to get uh, uh, scenes that are able to sort of just stand on their own in and of themselves and the stuff that's kind of like oftentimes around it as a, as a skeleton, kind of like holding it up, it, it would become like not necessary, right? Um, and, you know, maybe as we go through some of these additional chapters, like some like more specific examples might, might, might start coming up. But like, yeah, I definitely agree that a book like this, uh, you know, being in the one hand, like a really uh, a well done book, but also stuff that like you just notice, like things could be like done a different way. Um, if you're working on something, right, like similar, like a novel or whatever, you know, it, it really should be giving you ideas, right? You should never, you should never read something where, you know, every chapter doesn't create some kind of judgment within you. Like you should always kind of train yourself to go through material, judging it as you're going along and also making sure that if you need to adjust your judgments as new information comes to light, you're able to do that too, right? But uh, um, yeah, it's it, it these these kinds of books are useful for that reason, I'd say. And maybe just getting in on uh, one other kind of flaw that I noticed is you can definitely tell that like Vonnegut's sense of humor is leaving him a little mm -hmm. bit. Like this is just not as like even Slaughterhouse, Five, yeah. even Slaughterhouse Five, as as sad and beautiful as it is, is like an intensely funny book a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of punchlines in here that like I have doubled over in laughter reading Breakfast of Champions before. But the, the one that really stood out to me as maybe the most egregious example of like dad joke, Kurt Vonnegut, I guess, mm -hmm. is the only way that you can kind of put it. Uh, this is on page 35 in my Kindle edition. But it is, in, I don't know what chapter it's in, uh, but uh, it, if I may interject a personal note, I myself had been working as a welder in Malmö for about a year, but the Bahia de Darwin had not yet materialized sufficiently so as to require my services. I would literally lose my head to that steel maiden only when springtime came. Question, 
who hasn't lost his or her head in the springtime? Like you can imagine a younger version of Kurt Vonnegut could have come up with something a little more clever to end that paragraph, but it just feels like, mm. it, like it feels like an imitation of Vonnegut rather than like, you know, pure, like, you know, prime uh, ripe Vonnegut, you know, you can yeah. kind of see that maybe his, um, his, like his, the piquancy of his observations that made him so funny and so trenchant in his earlier books is maybe starting to slip from him a little bit. Yeah. And I've definitely seen this, this I, I, and I would, I haven't read Hocus Pocus in a long time, but I've read Bluebeard, I've read Timequake, and I have read some of his short stories from his later collections, because that's mostly what he did after this. And it, he just was never as good as, as this book again. You know, he never, he never quite had it. You know, he got in, got a little older and he just, whatever like sharpness and intensity of being made him so good in his younger years you know he just he, you get older you know mm -hmm. you like you you kind of in, in in his case it seems like he maybe got more depressed and misanthropic or you kind of just settle in and go like well you know my life's been pretty good you know things are okay i guess and like the 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 hunger in you that makes you kind of you know seek for that that fresh little nugget of insight it just goes away a little bit yeah yeah i, I mean in general uh, this this book wasn't uh i mean there were, there were some funny parts obviously uh funny senses but uh definitely not as good like there's like there's um yeah like there's plenty of scenes where like that uh mark twain quote like the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Uh, there's, I mean, there's plenty of that here, right? Where it's like, okay, this is a functional joke. This is objectively, there's humor within the statement, but it's simply not something that's going to make uh, me laugh, especially like, you know, being used to a, a, a funnier version of Vonnegut. But mm -hmm. I mean, you, you definitely notice how like the humor here in general just doesn't, it doesn't really stick with you as much. And even like some of the kind of like individual funny lines, right? Or even like the individual kind of like, you know, gut punch lines that, that stick with you. Um, it's, it's not as much here. Like, like, you, like the way that human beings get characterized in Breakfast of Champions, like when he starts talking about babies, right? They're coming into the world uh screaming and crying for milk that is such a like a perfect description of kind of like what motivates people right um what motivates human waste what what motivates mm -hmm. just like you know like any kind of trajectory that you would set yourself upon uh most people are motivated by that right it's the kind of it's the emotional tantrums from just like living and this craving for, you know, you need to find some kind of nourishment. And even if we have total nourishment and, you know, we would never like go hungry uh, in, in many places in the West. Uh, now there's like this, like, if you're satisfied in that way, you need an overnourishment, right? You need to now get fat. You need another kind of comfort. Um, so uh, there's, there's really uh, not a, as much stuff like that here right like uh you know as we were going through like i mean we could just compare like my original notes for cat's cradle versus uh what i sent here like i i just can't find that many like individual sentences that that would really stick with me you know mm -hmm. 
Well, also, I mean, you can see him. I mean, I would say that the uh, the 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 use of quotations from this in oh yeah, it's another thing pocket supercomputer called Mandarax. Mm-hmm. It is sometimes very effective, and it does serve like a philosophical function in the novel, which is to sort of like you know here like here is all this accumulated human wisdom over time condensed into this thing that ends up on the bottom of the ocean and it becomes functionally useless to what humanity eventually becomes mm-hmm. you know like it like it serves a clear thematic and philosophical and aesthetic function in the book but it's just it's just not as memorable and it's mm-hmm. not as well done and it's not as funny as the Bokonin, uh little poems that are interspersed throughout Cat's yeah. Cradle. Yeah, it feels like exactly. a worse version of that. Yeah, like, I, I mean, like, there, there's a lot that you could say in terms of, like, uh, keeping, you know, uh, the, the Mandarax uh, idea, right? I mean, like, one of the, uh, I think, most effective parts of it uh, is that, you know, a, as the book goes on, it, like it becomes less and less relevant, right? To everybody, um, you know, even if you have like Mary that's still kind of like fixated on it, she still like wants to talk to it. Uh, there's there's like a new society forming and it becomes just like less and less relevant to everybody, right? And it's sort of fitting that it's like this one, you know, like guy with like, you know, dementia, right? This captain who just like in a fit of rage, just like throws it in, into the ocean, right? That is a kind of like fitting end for some of the commentary that's being done in the book about human pro- progress, about human aspirations, about sort of, you know, human self-definitions. But individually, yeah. the like the way that the Mandarax should be like supported in the text throughout is like, yeah, by use of those quotations, like what will these quotations do for the book, for like, you know, the way that a chapter maybe opens or ends. And yeah, many, many of them, uh, they, they both propel the narrative forward and also just kind of give like pithy sort of like explanations uh, of things or like make you see things in a new light. But many of the quotes used are just kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I get why they would be used. It makes sense. It's logical. But it's not necessarily memorable, right? It's not um, so like like even like when you follow the trajectory of this device, like from its appearance to when it's ultimately destroyed, you see all the logical reasons why it would be used. You see some of the individual, um, you know, uh, elements where, where it works, but just the way that it's like buoyed up, right, throughout the text, like those individual iterations and instantiations they don't really work that 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 well all the time you know mm-hmm. yeah and uh and you know, and it's another example of like some prudent pruning would have made it more effective you know because it's yeah you could eliminate some less, quotes easily yeah you could just if it was yeah yeah like if you just had picked the ones that landed the best that mm-hmm. maybe instead of just being like you didn't feel like writing a paragraph there. So you let the quote do the work. Like it's the ones that have some kind of an ironic application or, or just maybe it was like summed it up as best you could, or it was just this sort of like, uh, like, like covering of like, you know, here is how all of accumulated human wisdom is like funneling into this moment where the species is essentially like hitting the reset button. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like it, like there's a way in which it could, it, like it could be like, it's not that it's not effective, it, but there's a way in which it could clearly be more effective. And he has demonstrated it in other books. And that the same thing, uh, you know, he did a different thing that was effective in Breakfast of Champions with the, with the cute little drawings, yeah. you know, like he doesn't overdo that in that book either. Like there's just enough that it is pretty consistently amusing and efficacious you know, yeah. here. And, and, and in many ways, like, I think it, it as like, there's nothing I can like, like just reading the book as itself, divorcing it from like Vonnegut and like a, a, as the author or whatever, like there's not a lot you can specifically complain about other than maybe it's just a little too verbose and he could have done some pruning. But when you compare it to Cat's Cradle, uh, it does kind of it feels like a retread of Cat's Cradle, including like the apocalypse. Mm. You know, it's like the story of the last survivors of the apocalypse. And Cat's Cradle went all out and just said, nope, humanity's done. You know, these mm. are people just sort of living in a dream world of like whatever remains of their existence. Um, and, and here it's a little more hopeful in that it imagines that like, there is a reset button for humanity that is at least theoretically possible that could lead them to a more harmonious existence with their selves and circumstances. But it's a little bit like, you know, when you, when you read it in his corpus, it's kind of like the difference between Goodfellas and Casino in Scorsese's oeuvre. You know, it's not that Casino is a bad movie. In fact, it's an excellent, maybe even a great movie if you just read it on its own. But in a world where Goodfellas and Mean Streets exist, it just feels kind of like, okay, you're dipping back into the well a little bit. You know, you're doing the same thing, but it's a little more bloated. It's Mm -hmm. a little less poetic. You know, it's, I mean, there are some people who would say that that it's more memorable, but I think it's objectively left less of a pop cultural imprint. Like you have to be a little hipsterish to be like, oh, Casino is the better movie of the two. You know, like it's a, just, a, it's a, just a, not a, quite yeah, as good. A, 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 lot, a lot of people say that though, the casino is better because they, you know, they want to be hipsters. I, I watched it again, like maybe like a year ago. And one thing that, that struck me is just how, um, I forget the name of the characters, Robert, it's the protagonist, right? The Robert De Niro character, but how he, you know, he essentially gets entangled with this woman that like causes his downfall, but it was it, like, it was, it was so like, it's so obvious, I think to like any viewer that this is really where things are going on the one hand. And it's also just very surprising that, um, you know, in a movie about gangsters, there is like somebody there's like ostensibly like high enough, you know, in this hierarchy that has, you know, like a very obvious weakness that did not kill him, you know, years and years ago. Right. But now it's so, so like, you know, like and, and you notice you notice like something like that. Right. Like in the in the Scorsese universe, uh, that that is a big enough flaw where you just kind of like, you know, you would expect like a, a character like that to have like, you know, succumb to, to these uh, things like before we even see this character on the screen. Right. Before he could even be put on the screen here you have like something like weirdly analogous where um, like, if you look at the Wikipedia page for, for Galapagos, uh, one of the things that they make a big deal about and they, they, they tally it for whatever reason, they give you a list of all the uh, uh, famous people, right? Like writers or like whoever um, politicians, whatever uh, that uh, the Mandarax takes quotes from 
right? And again, like you, you know exactly what the idea is, right? Just like in the same way that you know that in Casino, the idea is we're going to present this like, you know, femme fatale that's like fucked up in her own ways as a downfall character. But you also understand that, okay, so if, if we have like all the, a list of all these quotations and all these people responsible for these quotations, and this is supposed to be like the history of humanity, fine, I get with the logical purposes, but again, you know, too many quotes, many of them not necessarily uh, uh, doing what they ought to be doing, right? Or they're just mm -hmm. doing, you know, repeats of what other quotes did like right before. And, you know, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you need to keep things like that fresh if this is going to be um, one of the ideas. And, and I, I think one of the, one of the best uh, parts here is like how Darwin gets kind of analyze like early in the book and also you know the implications for the rest of the book like this is in chapter three so this is after after uh james wade is introduced we're now in chapter three there's like more of that philosophy that returns and the way that uh darwin's theory gets characterized is like this there was a portrait of darwin behind the bar of the el dorado framed in shelves and bottles an enlarged reproduction of a steel engraving depicting him not as a youth in the islands, but as a portly family man back home in England with a beard as lush as a Christmas wreath. The same portrait was on the bosom of t-shirts for sale in the boutique and Wade had bought two of those. That was what Darwin looked like when he was finally persuaded by friends and relatives to set down on paper his notions of how life forms everywhere, including himself and his friends and relatives, and even his queen, had come to be as they were in the 19th century. He thereupon penned the most broadly influential scientific volume produced during the entire era of great big brains. It did more to stabilize people's volatile opinions of how to identify success or failure than any other tome imagine that right and i, I mean i i thought this was like a, a perfect way to um uh, describe that part of the theory the way that people have responded to it um and also just kind of like you know you could get a lot out of this description right it did more to stabilize people's volatile opinions of how to identify success or failure than any other tome like it this is so applicable to so many areas of life right beyond like yeah. the purely you know the purely darwinian sense of uh you know uh, doing things to reproduce right um, because we have so many proxies for success, right? I mean, like wealth obviously is a proxy for success, partly because uh, having access to wealth gives you access to women, which gives you access to uh, children, right? Uh, you know, it, it, it always goes back, right, to those kind of like reductive terms. Um, but like success more broadly, right? Proxies that are kind of like less obviously even tied to wealth, uh, uh, they're also, you know, being interpreted in broadly Darwinian terms by, by, you know, people uh, all over the planet today. Yeah. Well, also, uh, you know, I, the, I mean, the thing about Darwin is despite, you know, despite the, the theory of evolution having been like a landmark thing in the sciences that arguably one of the greatest contributors to like true secularization uh, of, of society you know, in the last 200 years, 
like essentially people just used it to reinforce whatever it was they already believed in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're, uh, there are people who take it as like, you know, this proof of like pure relativity, you know, and like, and uh, social conditioning and things like that, you know, all success and failure is entirely determined by your circumstances. And, you know, it's not that you, there was anything wrong with you. It's just, you know, you were not born into circumstances fortuitous to your whatever. So we all have to help you. Or if you're on the right, more right wing or fashy end, it's like, well, no, success or failure is rewarded. You know, so if somebody has succeeded or failed, then it's because like it is because of them. You know, they are either fit for the circumstances or they are not. And we shouldn't waste, you know, so much emotion on people's failures because it's what was supposed to happen. You know, and you see a mirror of that, too, with the fact that this guy, you know, the, the who, who was a scientist who contributed to knowledge, you know, for its own. I mean, he did write a book that was sold, but he wasn't doing it to sell books specifically. It has been like commodified and turned into like the mascot of this hotel and this cruise. And uh, yeah, like and it's, it's, on, in, it's like, in between bottles, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it's, so it's, it's, like, like it's, it's like a portrait between bottles and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like it, 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 it's it's like both true and ironic at the same time. Like it did convince a lot of people of the rightness of what they also believed, but it also mm -hmm. didn't actually influence them because they just kept believing what they always believed. You know, it was it was stabilizing in the sense that it gives people a like objective uh, branch to grab onto in like self justifying their behavior to themselves. Yeah. Um... And actually, I think there's a good, you, you stopped right before what I think is actually like uh, a pretty good joke, which is uh, right after Imagine That, he says, and the oh, name yeah, yeah. of this book summed up its pitiless contents on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life. Yeah. Like describing, describing the or on the origin of species as being full of pitiless con uh, contents is, yeah. that's a pretty classic Vonnegut line. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have, because uh, I have some more on the kind of like, the like, do you have any comments on like the broader kind of financial crisis and uh, um, like how Vonnegut is, is, is spinning it, right? Like uh, there's this thing on uh, in chapter 15, uh, like, like money and, and value, right? Like it's imaginary. It's so weightless and impalpable that any amount of it could be transferred instantly to Ecuador, right? Like it, it seems like it, it's a, a presaging of many of the critiques, right? That we hear today uh, about capitalism, right? Where you have like this, like phantom value that might've been actually, you know, on, on people's minds um, in the eighties uh, when the book was written, I believe 1986 is when it was published. Um, and we had, uh, we had a financial, uh, downturn. Uh, I think it was in '88 that were '89, uh, not not in '86. But like, there was this definitely this this feeling like in the '80s starting that um, with all these like new complex financial instruments, like we're getting further and further away, right, from actual like day to day palpable value, right, stuff that is measurable, especially in terms of like 
truly being productive, right? Not measurable in terms of what people are willing to pay for whatever, but stuff, st stuff that is like objectively like productive assets, right? We were getting further and further away from that uh, by the time the 80s, you know, even before like, you know, like financial downturns uh, made people kind of like more aware of it. It was still kind of like discussed in, in like, you know, pop media at the time, you know, movies like, uh, like uh, American Psycho, stuff like that. Um, I don't know if you had anything else to say uh, uh, on that, because like after this point, he sort of like slows down from any more discussions of like uh, of money and, and, and value in, in those terms. No, I mean, I don't I don't have a lot to add to that. I mean, uh, he also talks about it vis-a-vis -vis the environment quite a bit as well. And I mean, the 1980s, I mean, knowledge of, of global warming has been around arguably since like the late 1800s when it was first theorized, but certainly the 80s is when you really started seeing it kind of start to popularize. And so, and so I think putting both of those things like in play here is, uh, yeah, I mean, he's honestly, I mean, it, it seems like he was basically be you know in some ways it's actually a very sobering thing because here's someone in 1986 that seems very concerned about the exact same things that we on the left or the left adjacent sphere are very concerned about right now and yet it's 30 years later and very little progress has been made on any of this and we're and we're also in kind of a, a chicken little mode a little bit as a as a culture where we feel like everything is coming to an end right now but in all likelihood, it's just going to be 30 more years of the same like neurosis and anxiety about the yeah. exact same thing. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. Big I, brains. Yeah. And, <laughs> speaking of big brains, like the, um, I thought like what was like one of the most effective uses of the big brain controlling metaphor. This is a chapter. Um, this is chapter 14, pages 66, 67, if anybody is, is doing this edition. Um, so this is like the, talking about the, the last marriage in the Galapagos. The last human marriage in the Galapagos Islands, and thus the last one on Earth, was performed on, uh, for Nandina Island in the year 23,011. Nobody today has any idea what a marriage is. I have to say that Mandarax's cynicism about the institution back in its heyday was largely justified. My own parents made each other miserable by getting married, and Mary Hepburn, when she was an old lady on Santa Rosalia, once told the furry Akiko that she and Roy had been, quite possibly, the only happily married couple in all of Ilium. What made marriage so difficult back then was yet another, uh, was again that instigator of so many other sorts of heartbreak, the oversized brain. That cumbersome computer could hold so many contradictory opinions on so many different subjects all at once and switch from one opinion or subject to another one so quickly that a discussion between a husband and wife under stress could end up like a fight between blindfolded people wearing roller skates. The Hiraguchis, for example, whose susurrations Mary had heard through the back of her closet were then changing their opinions of themselves and each other and of love and sex and work and the world and so on with lightning speed. In one second, Hisako would think that her husband was very stupid and that she was going to have to rescue herself and her female fetus. 
But then in the next second, she would think that he was as brilliant as everybody said he was and that she could just stop worrying, that he would get them out of his mess very easily and soon. In one second, Zenji was inwardly cursing her for her helplessness, for being such a dead weight. And in the next, he was vowing in his head to die if necessary for this goddess and her unborn daughter. Of what possible use was such emotional volatility, not to say craziness, in the heads of animals who were supposed to stay together long enough at least to raise a human child, which took about 14 years or so. Right, so... Um, the, yeah, the, the, this is like one of the more effective uh, ways uh, mm -hmm. uh, of, of using this kind of like big brain idea, because I mean, you know, obviously, like it's very relatable, right? People uh, have been in all sorts of arguments with uh, their, uh, um, you know, uh, whether it's like their spouses or whoever, right? And, you know, you, you, you see your own kind of volatility, like play out, you know, probably every day, right? Uh, even if you don't necessarily express an opinion, Right. You might have like a stray thought that is in contradiction to some of the things that you believe or some of the things that you think that you believe or you want to believe. Right. What does this do to you psychologically? What happens when some of these uh, opinions that perhaps should not be vocalized because maybe they don't have anything to do with reality? Uh, if they are vocalized, like what, you know, like what effect does that actually have on your day to day life? Like, like, is there like a point of no, re no return? Right. So, um, yeah, I found that to be like one of the more effective uses uh, of, uh, of this idea right throughout the text. And, you know, he, you know, just limiting uh, it to just specifically these kinds of sketches, especially if they're used to kind of like propel character forward, um, mm -hmm. I, I think would have been like the wiser choice. And I guess like uh, another thing that we could ask in relation to all this is um, whether it's like James Wade or, or some of these other characters, uh, to what extent are these like full human beings, right? Versus uh, just kind of like things that 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 Vonnegut uses, you know, characters to kind of like propel ideas forward, as opposed to, you know, uh, propel some of their kind of like natural dynamics. Because I, I mean, to me, they definitely do have tons of like truly human qualities like at, at his best characterization here you know these are you know some excellent sketches right they are hyper realistic like this what i just described is hyper realistic and you know in, in the remainder of the chapter he he goes through like an actual interaction that these um uh, characters have and you know but by not giving everything to the reader i i think that's also a good technique like when, when um uh, she's like thinking about uh, Zenji, right? Uh, and, um, uh, 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 like thinking, like, wait, is he as brilliant as I, as I believe that, 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 as others believe that he is, right? Or is there something more to it? Like, she's probably having that thought, although we can't, you know, tell because we, we don't really see too many interactions between them up until this point. Probably what she's thinking is, okay, I'm in this like fucked up situation with this ship. There's this, you know, there's all this stuff going on. How can I save myself? My husband, you know, he's not able to to save me because his head, you know, for smart he is like it's always in the clouds, right? It's always, um, you know, involved in everything other than everyday reality that we're dealing with right now, 
right? Um, and this is kind of implied, right? Like we we know that he's a computer programmer. We know that 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 might be what the implication is. We know that he's probably not ever been in this kind of situation. So we probably do understand why her reaction is as volatile as it is, right? Like his specific sort of advantages, like back in Japan, might not be very useful in this new kind of situation. So his like, you know, wonderful uh, uh, intelligence, right, is, is useless here. And this is creating this vol this emotional volatility in herself, right? And it's not really spelled out to you, but um, uh, you're, you're left like with enough sketches where you could draw that conclusion on your own before yeah. you, you even get their interactions. Also a nice mirroring of the evolution theme there, you know, the idea that an adaptation that is successful in one environment can be you know, useless and a, and a hindrance in a different environment. But the way that Vonnegut does characters is like, his, to, like to me, his characters always feel like they're not, you know, this is not like kitchen sink realism. Mm -hmm. You know, this uh, is not like stream of consciousness where you're meant to just really get inside the head of the character. He gives sort of like a light sketch of the character enough that you can kind of en enough detail that they're not generic, but not so much that you can't kind of fill in the blanks yourself. You know, it's almost like uh, one of those optical or not, it's not I don't know if it's optical illusion, but like one of those drawings where it's like you, you need to take a sec to sort of see what it is because it uses kind of as few lines as possible but once you see it it's very obvious what it is mm -hmm. yeah you know he's uh, but and going going back to earlier critiques he doesn't do that any worse in this book than he does in any other book but because it's a little less poetic and a little bit more prosaic it does not land quite as much as it does in other books because what what his often um more spare or poetic style does is it sort of it creates a very solid base on which to hang these like sort of like or ornamented characterizations you yeah. know it, it creates a, a like there's already something very solid in your head and beautiful in your head that these all plug into very perfectly it's like i went to a um uh, a pumpkin festival with my family last night because my nephew wanted to go and there was, yeah, you know, there were individually carved pumpkins, but there are always the also these like kind of grandiose pumpkin sculptures where if you looked at any individual pumpkin, it wouldn't make any sense. But, you know, there, there, there is a way that they are arranged that makes them resemble something else. And the whole is much more beautiful than the sum of their parts. And so by, by being a little flabbier with the, uh, with the prose here, he sort of makes it so it's kind of, there, there's a less clear sense of what he's going for and a less controlled arrangement of everything. Yeah. And, and when you do that kind of control, it almost, like it creates things that you didn't even intend probably, you know, because it just fits together so perfectly that you can kind of marvel at it and it will reflect different like different angles will reflect different things you know and, and and that'll change through time as the environment that the book is situated in as the society around it changes that's why something like moby dick stands out as like exceptionally modern and relevant today in a way that most books from the night from the 1800s just don't yeah 
Yeah. Uh, do, do you have like any, um, I mean, I, ha- I have a few more notes here about later chapters, uh, things that we could talk about. It, w- was there like something else that um, was like pressing to you that you wanted to bring up? Uh, well, I, j- I mean, it's not a huge point, but I was going to say earlier that the, it's, I, I guess, a nice uh, application of his authorial godliness that the thing that gets Mary Hepburn killed is that she is going to retrieve this, you know, special supercomputer uh, mm. from the water when the dementia adult Adolf uh, throws it into the water uh, because he doesn't remember her, but he remembers that he hates that fucking computer <laughs> with this like very small amount of noise that it makes. Mm. Um, and she gets eaten by a shark after she retrieves it. Which is a little unrealistic because that's not actually how great white sharks behave. But, you know, yeah. it's funny. Funny enough. In the, but, you know, the fact that it's unrealistic is kind of like also Vonnegut showing his hand a little bit. Like mm-hmm. that it's not quite what he was. You know, it's a little too little too screwball for, for, for a Kurt Vonnegut story. But, it, like, in the story, what it shows is, you know, she has made this new life for herself on this island and she's become sort of a respected matriarch, but she can't give up this last remnant of the old society that she doesn't even know is a society that is in the process of dying. Like Mm -hmm. as, you know, as she is on this island, she just assumes that everything is going on, but you know, for, for the fact that she goes to retrieve it and try to bring back this, you know, accumulated wisdom of this world that was, that almost destroyed itself she is punished, not not punished, but that's that that's what she gets for doing it, you know. Yeah. And and so that's a that's a that's a nice touch, and it ties into the 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 mild biblicality of everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, speaking of Mandrax, uh, I, I think uh, the best use uh, of the machine here, probably the the most poetic use, was uh, in the same chapter. Uh, um, so like. The uh, the Japanese couple they're you know they're arguing with each other, and um, so uh, the wife right she she does like the, the um, you know she 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 uh, his ago she does the ikebana thing which is like Japanese uh, like flower uh, arrange arrangement art I guess like it's like, like a small kind of like arts and crafts thing uh, going on, um, and it seems like one of the conflicts in their relationship is that he maybe doesn't like uh respect what she does like as an art or whatever um and part of that suspicion uh is it starts to like come to the fore right when mandarak starts to like explain how to do these uh, flower arrangements right and she starts feeling like you know superfluous like why, why am i necessary um uh, it, 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 in this world right if like this machine could do this for me which you know it's like a classic kind of like you know vonnegut trope right he's often uh either directly you know talking about uh, automation like in um uh that that novel player piano or he's kind of like doing it by implication so um the way that this is described is so mandarax she said turns out to be a very good teacher of the art of flower arranging that was what she had been so proud of being, of course. But her self-respect had been severely crippled by the discovery that a little black box could not only teach what she taught, but could do so in a thousand different tongues. 
I was going to tell you, I meant to tell you, he said. This was another lie, and her learning that Mandarax knew Ikebana was as improbable as her guessing of the combination to a bank vault. She had been very reluctant to learn how to work Mandarax and would remain so until she died. But by golly, if she hadn't fiddled with the buttons there on the Omu until suddenly, Mandarax was telling her that the most beautiful flower arrangements had one, two, or at the most three elements. In arrangements of three elements, said Mandarax, all three might be the same, or two of the three might be the same, but all three should never be different. Mandarax told her the ideal ratios between the altitudes of the elements and arrangements of more than one element, and between the elements and the diameters and altitudes of their vases or bowls, or sometimes baskets. A cabana turned out to be as easily codified as the practice of modern medicine. Um, and I, I thought this was a, probably the, the best use overall, right, of, uh, uh, of Mandrax here, partly because there's a lot, you know, there, there's a characterization that flows from it. There's uh, this kind of like overall thematic thrust that flows from it, right, in the sense that like, uh, yes, humanity uh, gets to start over, right, if you want to still call that humanity, but like, what is the point, right? It, that seems to be the kind of like uh, concluding feature of, of some of the book, right? It, it's not just the hopefulness. It's also the, well, so what? Like, are you simply going to, you know, develop, a, you know, another form of intelligence and, and go down the same route, right? That, 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 that you know, made you essentially uh, go extinct almost, right, from the beginning. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so well, I'm... It's in some ways Vonnegut's most pessimistic book, actually, because it, it's sort of like he's so fed up with the the problems and the, and the the breakdown of society and the environment that he almost can't see a way out other than humans just become like evolving into a, a simpler creature without as much intelligence and and just more rud a more rudimentary rooted relationship to the world and to their environment so uh but uh, yeah that is pretty you know a pretty classic vonnegut concern like because it's not just the automation itself it's like people sort of realizing that this thing that they've invested so much of themselves in is actually like relatively simple when you break it down and you and and you do the pieces apart i mean it requires the, the the wisdom of experience to know how to do it truly properly but like you know ultimately like we we assign a lot of ego and vanity to our uh to our endeavors in order to i, I maybe a, a ignore the fact that we're not doing it for whatever high-minded reasons we do it for ourselves and we're not always doing it with this like you know, in intense intelligence, like we're often behaving as algorithmically as any computerized uh, tra information transmission would, mm -hmm. you know, but we can't, we can't handle that. And so we have to sort of invent drama and, and tell stories to ourselves around it in order to justify this expenditure of time to ourselves. Yeah. And, and yeah. he has he has this like in, interesting like flirtation with um you know I guess a kind of like biological 
uh, well, maybe it is a kind of biological determinism. Maybe, maybe there's something else going on. Um, on uh, page uh, 82, uh, this is chapter 16. Uh, the, this is the way that he's just describing these characters, right? So, I mean, these are like ostensibly like, you know, like supposed to be like human-like characters, human beings on this ship. Um, and the way that he describes uh, this crew is, if Selena was nature's experiment with blindness, then her father was nature's experiment with heartlessness. Yes, and Jesus Ortiz was nature's experiment with admiration for the rich. And I was nature's experiment with insatiable voyeurism. And my father was nature's experiment with cynicism. And my mother was nature's experiment with optimism. And the captain of the Bahia de Darwin was nature's experiment with ill-founded self-confidence. And James Waite was nature's experiment with purposeless greed. And Hisako Hiraguchi was nature's experiment with depression. And Akiko was nature's experiment with furriness and on and on. Um, and I mean, it, it, like, just, just like it, it, if you want to think about it for, for a moment and maybe just like draw this out, see, see where it goes. Uh, you know, human beings, uh, especially in the modern world, right, where uh, you don't have to like just default to, uh, you, know, you know, like ancestral uh, states, right? Um, you know, perhaps uh, a 5'8 male, right, in, in the uh, uh, ancestral environment would have been a lot less liable to, sur to survive than today. Uh, uh, perhaps you being a seven foot, uh, five inch male, um, don't have as many special advantages, right, uh, uh, in, in this world, right, compared to some of the advantages that you might have had, you know, centuries before where like raw, you know, just physical presence would have been more important, right? Whereas like, you know, these days you could, uh, um, you know, you, 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 you could get by, right? Much better on many other advantages simply because, you know, like we've sort of like, or we kind of like pretend, right? Like that, that like physical presence should not be the thing that determines, you know, sorts of uh, uh, life outcomes, for example. Um, but like, you know, in the modern world, like we have so many niches where we could succeed, right? And we could succeed not only by like, you know, the, 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 the typical Darwinian proxies of, uh, um, you know, wealth and reproduction and stuff like that, but there's like other kinds of ways that you could acquire success. And, you know, on some level, like if you atomize it, uh, uh, just, just hard enough, right? You go and you go further and further into the territory. Like, is it true that human beings have all sort of uh, uh, found these kinds of niches, right? And biology is just there kind of in the background, you know, uh, forcing you into these experiments. And then after your experiment upon, you know, you're sort of let loose in the world, right? And you have to find that niche, right? You have to find that place where that experiment that worked out in that specific way in your life, in your particular instantiation, right? You're supposed to find that niche and you're supposed to find success within it. Uh, yeah, well, the, for some reason, as you were talking, my brain was also going to the concept of intelligent design as well, that sort of somewhat defunct concept. But it, it, when, you, when you phrase it like this, it really does make the idea of intelligent design like, like it's actually less coherent than creationism, even though it takes into account like the scientific like facts of biology that make the theory of evolution our best explanation of 
the diversity of life in this planet because it makes you because like if the whole point of everything was for it to result in us you know the on what on, on, like on what basis would god engage in all these other like side experiments you know did he not mm -hmm. know that it was going to work you yeah. know like the, the the only way that intelligent design makes sense is if it did was not in fact intended to result in us but it was some sort of like powerful but not all-knowing figure that was just sort of experimenting with some sort of synthetic reality that it had gained power over and just seeing what happened if it tweaked things just a little bit over time mm -hmm. so but i mean the you know the whole idea of experimentation i mean that's just i i i mean in the i mean the reason that humans do experiments is to increase their knowledge and to amuse themselves basically mm -hmm. you know it's it, it is i mean every everything we do that is not eating and sleeping and fucking and building shelter is like just a way to pass the time mm -hmm. you know it's just a way to make the fact that we are on this planet for 80 to 90 to 100 years you know more to to divert our brains while we were doing that and try to find some enrichment and understanding so like to the to the extent that you can talk about like nature experimenting like that's the universe kind of blindly doing the same thing or maybe not blindly who knows the nature of reality but mm -hmm. it's just sort of like things happening because they can happen and because it's slightly more interesting than if they didn't happen yeah you know and it's I, but I, I, I did, you know, the, I, did, I did think that I thought that passage when you were reading it went on just a little bit too long, you know, that's just another kind of feature of the novel, but, you know, concept, con conceptually it's good and it also, you know, it, 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 it's the kind of thing that probably more people should read to maybe un understand themselves aside from their egos a little bit, you know, to understand that like, like whatever you are, it's you know, just it's nature. It, ultimately, what you are is nature trying something out to see if there is any sort of increased uh, survival survivability that is introduced to some collection of genetic material, either yours or someone else's that your existence introduces into the fray. You know, mm -hmm. it's it, it, like, don't delude yourself about yourself too much or you're going to lose the plot. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, um, later on in the book, uh, page, page 102, um, there's this like discussion, like of like overt, uh, morality and the kinds of things that people say to themselves, right. To kind of like justify either behaviors or like a certain kind of like mode of existence, um, which, uh, we could talk about here and also just a, a later scene. So, um, there's there's this uh, businessman on the uh, uh, trip, right? Macintosh, who you know he's presented also as a kind of like sociopath, right? He's also uh, 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 evil in many ways, um, but uh, he goes on this kind of like spree where he's justifying uh, his life choices, right, by kind of like whitewashing them through like a kind of like faux activism, right, um, and there's there's this part right so there in elaine's restaurant mcintosh angered his spellbound audience with tales of boots crushing the camouflage nest of iguanas of greedy fingers stealing the eggs of boobies and on and on his most moving atrocity story by far though again lifted from the national geographic 
was of persons cradling fur seal pups in their arms as though they were human infants for the sake of photographs. When the pup was returned to its mother, he said bitterly, she would no longer nurse it because its smell had been changed. So what happens to that darling pup, which has just had the great honor of being cuddled by a big hearted nature lover, asked Macintosh. It starves to death, all for the sake of a photograph. So his answer to Bobby King's question was that he was setting a good example he hoped others would follow by taking, quote, the nature cruise of the century. It is a joke to me that this man should have presented himself as an ardent conservationist, since so many of the companies he served as a director in which he was a major stockholder were notorious damagers of the water or the soil or the atmosphere. But it wasn't a joke to Macintosh, who had come into this world incapable of caring much about anything. So in order to hide this deficiency, he had become a great actor, pretending even to himself that he cared passionately about all sorts of things. With the same degree of conviction he had earlier given his daughter an entirely different explanation of why they were going to the islands and the Bahia de Darwin instead of the Omu, right? Um, and I mean, th this is like so kind of like uh, true of, uh, you know, like so so much of like cha charitable, you know, contribution type activism, right? Um, yeah. par I mean, partly because like they, you know, like we had this like new regime, right, where you could like, you know, write off so much garbage, right? I think for like 20 or 2020, right, they allowed you to um, like literally like making any kind of donation, you could you could write it off a, a up to 100% of your income, right? You could you, you could you could finish the movement, right, of resources from the commons completely into the private sphere, right? Allowing completely the private sphere to take over all of these kinds of uh, operations that ought to be done by the government. And government is doing this willingly, right? And, you know, people are also like, uh, you know, far too willing themselves to kind of like, you know, they, they delude themselves in, in, into thinking that this is, uh, you know, that this is kind of like the, the way that the world can be uh, moved forward, right? And there's, there, there's like any number of justifications that occur along the way, right? And along the way, what I mean by that is, you know, all this other stuff is just en route to the actual conclusion, right? Which is like for most people, they just want access to something that would allow them to like, titillate themselves and to like just self-indulge forever right this is th this is what really moves uh people so often right like how can you set up your life where everything could just be you know self-indulgence and um th this is one of the ways that this happens right you 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 you, you do these kinds of things and then uh, along the way you whitewash it right you whitewash it through money right which is the thing that you do when you don't want to give your time, when you don't want to give, you know, uh, any real uh, energy to anything valuable, you whitewash your own deficiencies in that way uh, uh, through money, right? And, and this this kind of idea comes up in this book. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just go down a list, like every fucking, like, quote unquote, charitable billionaire is doing something or probably many things in their portfolio that is actively creating or, or contributing to the problem that they are ostensibly trying to solve with their charitable donations. Yeah. And, and so not only do they 
get the money from the, the unpriced externalities that result from the economic activity that gave them their billions in the first place, but they get the public credit for helping to solve it. Like, you know, B Bill Gates, with all his uh, public health initiatives in the global south, like how much public health crises has he created from like all the, the rare earth, uh, rare mineral uh, extraction that has to be done in all of these global south countries in order to create all of the, uh, all of the pieces of the computers that he made his money selling in the first place. You know, uh, when you look at like Warren Buffett and George Soros, like they do all this stuff uh, you know, all, all these, you know, ch ch charitable things and they're advocating for liberal policies and higher taxes on billionaires and whatever, but how much of the very problem of like inequitable distribution of resources was generated by their own like speculative financial, uh, trend, you know, by financial accumulation in the first place, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's like a closed loop. Uh, 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 in terms of like them retaining their hegemonic place within the system, maybe not totally hegemonic, but they're way, way, way overprivileged and over uh, over influential place in the system of human activity that does nothing but increase their reputations while totally undeservingly. But, you know, I mean, everybody i mean the thing is like there's no way to avoid like ulterior motives in anything you do you know because your brain is a many-sided thing and it doesn't do anything unless it wants to do it you mm -hmm. know like even something altruistic you get the the benefit of feeling good yeah you know you get the benefit of feeling like you're helping with something and you know unless you're uh living on a like a self uh like self-sustaining, like experimental farm in, in Guayaquil or something like that, you are in all likelihood like contributing to the very thing that you think that you're helping with your altruism, you know? But there, the, I mean, there is no way of escaping ulterior motives, but I do think there is at least a theoretical way of organizing that like the ulterior motives do not become like the, a, a way of people like oppressing other people on like a systemic level you mm -hmm. know you, you're never going to eliminate like hierarchy and a certain amount of like interpersonal exploitation and taking advantage of other people but certainly it doesn't have to be the the guiding light of an economy you know and part of the genesis of this book i think yeah. is that if like society had reached a point where vonnegut himself or at least his authorial overvoice or whatever couldn't any longer see much of a way out of it you know like things had progressed to a point where it didn't seem like people were going to get any better and things around them were going to get much worse yeah um and yeah i believe in general right uh you want well, like what, what people can and should eliminate right is this kind of like mass scale suffering right it's not it's not the interpersonal things right it's, it's not it's not that you know we want to like for instance like you know you don't want to ban like you know the individual uh decision to like take drugs or whatever right you want to simply like eliminate that right you you you, you can't like pass some sort of law where 
you know, a mature person and an immature person cannot start a relationship because, you know, the mature person can, you know, more easily like exploit the immature one. Like that's not what we're talking about. Right. But uh, just foundationally so much of, of uh, just, you know, everything that we're in, everything that we're dealing with, it comes from these like, you know, deeper roots of exploitation that need to be mitigated because that's always the the sort of like default desire that human beings would have as soon as you know those options are are made available to them um yeah well and and also like the 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 whole idea of like eliminating suffering is 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 correct but you, you know we we live extremely privileged lives here in the modern 21st century West in terms of like how many sources of want we have essentially been delivered from by technology and by even by our form of economic organization. But, you know, like we, we have plenty of extra people that could be doing good work and plenty of people even now that like could be doing stuff to help alleviate suffering. But and I, I hate to bring this up because game theory is also is always like a real dumb guy shit to talk about, especially nowadays where you have people doing like Twitter threads about it and shit. But like game theoretically, people are also perfectly justified in not doing that because if other people don't do it as well, then you you are essentially like depriving yourself toward no actually like effective end, you know? So it it ends in like a net negative to yourself and and the only way that you can really do it at this point is to just i guess take enough pleasure in that act of like self-denial and self-sacrifice that it makes up for like all all the other pleasure that you otherwise would have experienced but only a few people are going to come to that calculation in the absence of like a truly coordinated effort where everybody is like agreed that this is what we're going to do you know mm -hmm. so it's a real it, like I can see why Vonnegut was maybe as pessimistic as he was at, at that point, because it, I mean, in some ways, in terms of the like frivolousness uh, that undergirds everything, like the eighties were not dissimilar to now, you know, like where everything just felt like an experiment in like how much money can we make off of pure frivolousness? I mean, you had stuff like that in the nineties and two thousands and 2010s as well, but it does feel like, we got a reprieve with the fall of the Soviet Union and the like end of history and experimenting with like, you know, can we militarily deliver democracy to the rest of the world, to the places that have not yet adopted it? You know, there was sort of something for us to focus on. But now that that's been taken away because we realized it was a disaster, it's like, well, there's really not much else to do other than to just, you know, to what, what is it? Is it the Neil Postman book that's called like amusing ourselves to death? There's not anything else to do. So yeah. it's a real fucking hard nugget to crack, man. Yeah, it, this kind of like self amusement, right? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because you you have like so many uh, possible like sources of uh, stimuli, right? And uh, like oftentimes, like I, I want to be you know I want to be productive when I do stuff. So it's like, all right, if I'm gonna go take a walk, and if I'm walking a couple hours a day, uh, I want to you know I want to be listening to a book or I want to be like just just like something like i need something i need something in my like like chittering in my brain and uh like like recently um like i, I remember like just distinctly feeling yesterday i was like all right i want to go take another walk now uh and thinking 
yeah, I, I don't have to take anything with me, right? I don't need anything chittering in my brain. I don't need this because I was like in the middle of like choosing, okay, what am I going to choose for my walk, right? And I had like too many fucking options and I started getting overwhelmed. I was like, I'm not going to do shit. I just need to like walk and just be, you know, in my own head, not have anybody else's uh, influences, right? Um, and, you know, more and more, this is exactly what uh, we're getting, right? We're getting this like platter of, uh, of things that are very, you know, they're all like similar to one another, right? All the individual items are often just, they, 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 they kind of like meld into like one thing. Right. And then ultimately, it doesn't really matter what uh, uh, what you pick. Right. There's in the one hand so much plenty. There's also like an illusion of plenty that goes on. And there's like so much in between as well. Right. There's so many in between states, um, you know, getting getting from from uh, uh, one point to the other. Um, uh, also, like we were talking about, like, so like what, what are some of the kind of like maybe more uh, memorable elements and I think uh, maybe uh, the, the thing that stuck with me the most uh, in terms of like individual lines that you could really uh, uh, build towards uh, other things is he has this one line about a uh, sculpture right oh yeah this is a, a page um, 187 through 190 chapter 34 so like like thinking about uh like where where society is like after this collapse right uh this is what uh vonnegut or rather um leon trout says no one is interested in sculpture these days who could handle a chisel or a welding torch with their flippers or their mouths right so he he turns it into like a joke or kind of like of course people aren't interested in sculpture right they don't have the hands for it, right? They don't have uh, the, the physical equipment for it. But it strikes me as something that is so applicable to like so many things outside of like this one specific joke. It's not merely that uh, human beings now flippers and they can't, you know, they, they can't uh, work with plaster any longer. Uh, it's a question that you could ask in general, right? why are we no longer interested in X, right? And there is there is always like some kind of explanation, right? Here, he needs the kind of a default physical explanation because that's like the plot of the book. But in general, I mean, we could ask the same question. Why aren't people interested in sculpture? It's, it's a relevant question, right? There's not much going on in the world of sculpture when you look at the kinds of things that, you know, capture the imagination. I remember recently, um, like, uh, there was this, like, whole thing uh, with, with these, uh, uh, you know, right-wing, like, uh, pickup artist types on Twitter. They were, like, going on and on and on about this, like, fucking, like, sculpture that they found, right? And it's, like, a sculpture of this, like, woman. And it was, like, very, very detailed. And it had, like, all this, um, you know, it clearly, like, it takes, like, some level of technical, technical skill to do the sculpture, but as a work of art, there really wasn't much to it, but these pickup artists uh, and Red Pillars, they just kept going on and on about, like, um, only a man could do a sculpture like this, because only a man could be this worshipful of women, right? Look at all the details, look at all the beautiful little things that he's thinking about. Turned out to be, like, some, I think it's, like, a lesbian uh, sculptor from China, but, uh, uh, it just struck me as very interesting how like the sculpture that really didn't have too much going on artistically, um, suddenly these people that ostensibly have absolutely zero interest in art 
they're all like, you know, piling on the sculpture to talk about how wonderful it is for all the wrong reasons, because they don't, they don't have a reason, right, to be in the art world, but they have some sort of like ideological axe to grind. They have a certain of ideas and titillations that they want to satisfy, like their own like little beliefs about the world. So, you know, they, they latch onto this sculpture. But in general, obviously, they're not interested in sculptures. Like you could ask that question. Why aren't people interested in sculpture? Unless, A, it's the red pillars that want to make some kind of point about their red pill ideology. Or B, all the uh, people replying to them, oh, by the way, you fucking like right wing cards you uh this is actually a chinese woman right that did the sculpture mm -hmm. like that's their like response to the art right again like no nothing to do with the art nothing to do with anything um yeah. I, why aren't well, people interested in sculpture let's just leave it at that well also and, and then there's also the, the the other sculpture related incident was when they put the uh the fearless girl statue in front of the wall street bowl uh oh, i don't really remember uh yeah so so while i think in on wall street there's been like a uh uh you know a pretty actually a pretty good sculpture of a of a bull like writhing and fighting or something like that which is of course an evocation of a bull market but at some point they the, there was a statue that was made of like a little girl kind of standing up doing like the superman pose and mm -hmm. it's like a very a small, like life life ish size statue, and I don't I don't know who I, who put it there, but they put it in front of the bull statue, yeah. so that it looked like you like a larger piece, you know, like she was standing up to the bull or whatever. And you, you know, you had all of these people, and again, it was mostly like alt right people being like, "Oh, this is just feminist drivel. You're changing the original sculpture." Blah blah blah. And other people that like also just defending it from the other direction of like, no, this is, you know, uh, you know, fe uh, feminine obstinacy standing up against like masculine aggression and, you know, callous disregard or whatever. And it's like, no, nobody was actually talking about this from like an artistic perspective. Yeah. They were just talking about it from whatever culture war bullshit, uh, frivolous ish, you know, uh, perspective that they, that, you know, that they already had, there was no, and the thing is, like the fearless girl sculpture, what like wasn't all that impressive of a sculpture, and the bull mm. sculpture is kind of impressive, you know. Like, but but yeah, the 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 newest one there. Uh, this was, I think, like last week. There was uh, an ape statue that was put in front of the bull statue, mm -hmm. and like a thousand bananas yeah. around around the bull. Right, ape ape yeah. ape meaning like this is like I guess what what artists thought was some sort of like you know, worthwhile evocation of the current moment of like meme stocks and meme coins, right? We're going to ape into them, right? This is, yeah. this is like the comment and it's so, it's just so fuck. it's just so lame and it's so, yeah. it's, it's so artless, right? It's like, yeah, you're, exactly. you're, you're, you're spending all this time with the sculpture. It clearly yeah. takes a lot of technical know-how. You're in some fucking like foundry with this metal, whatever it is that you're doing. And yeah. on the other end of all this like human effort, you get like a fucking ape and then you take like, you know, a thousand bananas and you put them there, which by the way, I mean, um, like in terms of like some of the, uh, you know, like a deeper comments in, in Galapagos, like I, I definitely had this thought as I was reading it, um, you know, just doing my normal like day-to-day -day routines 
uh, just like watching things outside on my walks and just thinking like, wow, like human beings just like do so much and they require so much. And like, to what end exactly, you know, uh, you, you know, you have a party and by the end of it, you know, you have like just so much garbage to clean up. Right. And it's like, could be even like hundreds of pounds of trash. Right. Or how much like, or how much like waste, you know, a, a normal human being typically produces and how many comforts are not even so much required, but simply by, you know, pure, you know, just, just pure kind of like, you know, force of habit, right? You have uh, uh, so many parts uh, in your life that, that you've become like just completely uh, sensitive to, right? Like you, you need to always have the temperature. So I say that because I'm that way. I need my temperature a certain way. You need to have like the clothes feel a certain way. I say that because I, I need my clothes to feel a certain way, right? On my body. Like all these things are just so like, they're so self-absorbed, right? They're so, uh, you know, the grand scheme of things pointless, and they come about not even like, you know, out of necessity, but simply because like you, you at what point you felt a very nice shirt and you're like, I want to recreate this. Or like you were very comfortable in your house during winter. I want to re recreate that all the time. Right. And the, all these like needs, needs, needs. Right. It's like that. It's like the, the, the Vonnegut baby, right. Coming into the world, screaming for milk. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and Galapagos definitely gives you, you know, that, that kind of like, you know, uh, misanthropy, not that this is necessarily a misanthropic book, but like, um, you, 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 you have to have these, like some of these kinds of thoughts as you're reading it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it ever gets to a point of full misanthropy. It's more so just like general cynicism, like, well, this yeah. is the way we are. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, so I mean, there's definitely a tension and I mean, this came up in some like Vonnegut comments uh, in the earlier YouTube videos. Uh, but I mean, there's definitely like a nice tension in Vonnegut between on the one hand, what seems cynical and perhaps even, uh, you know, just uh, completely hateful. Uh, and also just the fact that, I mean, Vonnegut also clearly loves humanity. He loves the fact that a human being can actually you know you know take these like creature comforts and pool these resources that would otherwise like, go to waste on like self-indulgence and create a book out of it right uh, uh do, do, do something that is like in some way greater than right and that greater than you know you could occupy that definition with like you know like lots and lots of things but greater than in general being, you know, greater than just like the sum of like just animal desires, animal machinations, animal behaviors, right? What, what can you do that is uh, lasting, that is positive, that is like a, a stepping stone for uh, other people in the future that, you know, will not do anything for you, right? You're, you're doing this like selflessly in some ways. Yeah. The artist that Vonnegut, was, I, I might have even said this in the previous video, but the artist that Vonnegut has always kind of uh, reminded me of the most in terms of his outlook, I guess, would be Ozu. Because they both mm -hmm. similarly have a love of humanity. They both similarly have a degree of cynicism about like what, what is actually going to happen in people's lives, like regardless of their like intrinsic uh, worth as people. 
But where Ozu, I remember in an interview that uh, that Dan did one time, I can't remember if it was written or video, it was described that if you notice in a lot of Ozu movies, the camera is always low and pointed slightly up. And so you almost have the impression that you are like a lesser being, like looking, like look very slightly looking up at these like, not gods exactly, but these like higher beings. Like Vonnegut sort of is like the other direction. He's looking down slightly, like he boils away some of the perhaps narcissistic particularities that we, that we, uh, that we focus so much on. And he just kind of boils people down to like, their simplest and most uh, efficiently and uh, piquantly uh, or trenchantly noticed uh, traits. And he puts them into sort of like wild situations to sort of see, see what would happen, mm-hmm. you know, but in, in terms of outlook, I think I, I, I they, they've always reminded me like I, that this is more subjective, but I get similar feelings reading a Vonnegut book that I get to watching an Ozu movie. And I think that they, you know, they come from different times and places, but I think they kind of hit on the same, same perspective. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to tackle the, uh, uh, the, the book's uh, ending? Um, because I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in a sense that you know, it's one of those things where just like uh, the Mandarax, like you know why it's there, right? Uh, many places, it's uh, it's it's well done, um, but it's also like a little bit incomplete, right? And I mean, same thing here, right? So like the ending is this kind of like a, a thing, right? Where you know, essentially, there's a bunch of odds and ends, like you mentioned earlier that every character uh, is touched upon uh, near the end. There is like some sort of resolution and there, there is like a kind of like a resolution here. Right. Um, but it's, it's kind of like, all right. So everything that the narrator hasn't touched upon, whether it's characters or whether it's like other ideas, we're going to now sort of make sure to, to hit upon them and, and, and give them like some level of, of closure. And this kind of like, you know, like self-conscious, uh, uh, technique i mean there's nothing wrong with doing that but um the uh you know like, but ultimately like, I, I i'm just wondering like like wh- how effective do you think the ending is overall uh well i think the last line itself is pretty good yeah um it does it but it does sort of feel like he didn't quite like he had a good last line mm-hmm. and he had an ending to the basic story, which is, you know, humanity having perhaps transcended its baser instincts and, you know, returned to monkey as the meme goes. Uh, but he didn't quite, he couldn't figure out a bridge. So maybe he just kind of took some scraps from like earlier in the novel that he hadn't included or that didn't make sense to include because the narrator doesn't talk about himself as much until near the end of the book um so it's like i think it's a good ending overall but the sort of bridge like between the absolute ending and the sort of natural ending of the story feels a little forced in mm-hmm. context to me yeah so, so, so like uh uh the ending is is where uh leon is basically just kind of giving um at the very end uh, his his uh, origin story essentially right how how did he ultimately come to sweden 
right? Um, so like a, a doctor picks them up, right? He, you know, he was in uh, Vietnam. He decides to like uh, escape uh, partly because it seems like he's seen like, he's seen murders, right? He's seen things that he doesn't want to be involved in, right? Um, so he goes AWOL. He also doesn't want to get in trouble. So he essentially uh, ends up like seeking a, asylum in Sweden. The doctor made me cry so much that I had to be sedated. When I woke up in a cot in his office an hour later, he was watching me. We were all alone. Feel better now, he said. No, I said. Or maybe. It's hard to tell. I've been thinking about your case while you slept, he said. There is one very strong medicine I could prescribe, but I leave it up to you whether or not you want to try it. You should be fully aware of its side effects. I thought he was talking about how resistant syphilis organisms had become to antibiotics thanks to the law of natural selection. My big brain was wrong again. He said he had friends who could arrange to get me from Bangkok to Sweden if I wanted to seek political asylum there. But I can't speak Swedish, I said. You learn, he said. You learn, you learn. Right, yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the last line is good. It's obviously like hitting upon, you know, um, some of the uh, themes of like, you know, natural selection, right? You learn, you learn, you'll adapt, you'll adapt. Like that's like one of the reverberations. There's like other things going on as well. Um, but uh, uh, overall, like it, it's also like a little bit, you know, I, I said this word before, pat. Uh, it's still kind of uh, pat in this situation too. It works. Um, and I think part of the issue is that we know exactly why it works, right? We know exactly how it works. And I think being able to say that uh, is, is, you know, it's kind of like the difference between like a, a book that may be good or even like excellent versus like something that is really, you know, like stand out great. Like there, I feel like there needs to be more ambiguity in terms of like knowing why something works and not knowing it, right? Like there, there needs to be uh, uh, some tension there that isn't uh, as present in, in this ending as like other Vonnegut endings might have like I mean Cat's Crate is the obvious one right there's a, a very kind of clear reason for it but there's like like a hundred sub reasons and different ways you could like tease that out that that aren't as apparent mm -hmm. yeah no it's just it's a little there's nothing specifically wrong with it it's again just like you know it's just not as good as stuff that you've done in the past you yeah. know it's a little to, to get away from the Scorsese example, it's a little like, there's not a lot of Wallace Stevens poems that I think you could say are like bad outright, mm -hmm. but there's quite a lot where you're like, well, you kind of did this already in other poems of yours that mm -hmm. I've read, you know, like you weren't, this wasn't you breaking new ground. This was just you kind of doing a different version of the same thing, but not quite as good, you yeah. know? So yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a totally, like there, it's a totally good, I would say maybe, maybe a great last line, but like a good ending in general, you know, but it just, it doesn't quite, especially because it doesn't, um, I mean, I guess it works for the, it maybe it doesn't quite work for the book because it's actually a circular ending technically because it like, it points back toward the, the very beginning, which is him going to Sweden and becoming a ghost, you know, mm -hmm. like, which in terms of the, 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 narrative like in terms of the narrative of like evolution and pro pro progress is not the, not the right word but like advancement you know or adaptation or whatever it's just not quite 
it's 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 not quite the right ending even though it's a good ending you know there's just Mm -hmm. it's like it's like you said earlier the difference between the right word and almost the right word is lightning and lightning bug you know like it just doesn't doesn't it hits a little different to use another cliche you know it's a little different and not quite as good yeah um and it's weird because i feel like we've been more negative here and i don't feel negatively toward the book at all yeah 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 i I think maybe we should uh uh make that clear i mean this this is at at minimum an excellent novel right uh very very well done but i mean you know it's it's it it is kind of interesting right to uh focus because i mean we're we're probably going to do some other like vonnegut type thing and uh uh, it's it's kind of nice to have a little bit of variety here in terms of these appraisals because I mean, if you if you read anything about Galapagos now or like you, you you read or you listen to some of the um, podcasts like there's like a few episodes on this like, that different people have done over the years uh, you know it's almost kind of like uniformly uh, praising the book um and but i i honestly didn't expect uh to have this conversation where we would be focusing a lot on the negatives right it's just uh it's kind of i mean you almost can't help because we you've i mean you have talked about two of his best books yeah you know ones where there's very few flaws so it's kind of it's a little hard not to notice that this is the is not quite as much of a slam dunk Mm-hmm. You know, like he had to hit the backboard first. It, it's not mm-hmm. like a total swoosh, nothing but net kind of uh, perfect shot book like some of yeah. his other stuff. And it, I mean, it makes for some variety in uh, in in podcast slash YouTube video content. But I think it's also, you know, especially if there's anybody that's like younger that uh, that that watches your stuff or listens to your stuff that is like newer to the arts or newer to the way that our little group has historically talked about the arts to, to take something that, you know, is like you said, minimally excellent or arguably great, even with the flaws, because none of the flaws like sink it completely. They just mm. are noticeable, um, you know, to, to sort of talk about the ways in which it, it, it differs from those other books, positive and, and, and negative and to, yeah yeah and, and to just and to see how that changes it from kind of because there's like it's weird because rereading it i actually had a i i, I do I, I like the book quite a bit i remember loving it the first mm-hmm. time that i read it and i wouldn't say i loved it this time like in the same way that my if people who saw the cat's cradle video my appraisal of it went up from what lived in my memory my appraisal of this one went down a little bit from the from the last time that i read mm-hmm. it uh just because for some reason, it, the, the, and maybe it's just cause I'm older and I'm, a, I'm you know, you always, I, yeah, until you hit a certain point, you always become a better reader as you get older, you know, you just yeah. are exposed to more things and you notice more things. Um, so I, I guess it was to me interesting to explore why, but I also thought, I think we praised it plenty too. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, plenty of the, all, all this stuff that we read was minimally good and often great writing, you know, mm-hmm. As, as I said, there's nothing like his characterization, I would say, is other than the fact that it's not as pared back as it usually is, as, as good as ever, you know, like he had pretty much mastered this like two line description of a person that captures like the totality of their being, mm-hmm. you know, by this point. So he employs it as well as he does anywhere else. It is often, it, it, even if it's not always gut bustingly funny, there are still 
plenty of funny parts and it's at least minimally humorous in a way that like modern postmodern literature or post postmodern or whatever fucking phase of that we're in now usually is not mm -hmm. you know because it's not trying so hard to be clever like most modern literature is it's just funny because these are people that are in a kind of over the top situation and they're kind of intrinsically relatable and funny characters unto themselves it's got you know uh, a, a well chosen if not always perfectly implemented like moti uh, motifs and the the central metaphor of like the big brain as the, mm. the the cause which you can you can split into many different directions you know like whether you're talking about neurosis or the relentlessly need to experiment in the absence of wisdom or anything like it, it's it's a central metaphor that you can kind of crack into many different interesting pieces mm -hmm. uh that you know that you can uh evaluate for yourself so there's nothing nothing about the book that like if like we could have talked about this book exactly the same as we talked about the other books that we've talked about you know nothing but like glowing praise and isn't this great and doesn't this work well and doesn't this bounce off this other thing so good but mm. to focus on the ways in which it falls a little bit short of the other stuff that I've read, I think is a useful and instructive exercise. Yeah, uh, I, I think so too. Um, <clears throat> I actually don't have uh, too much else to say. And I'm also kind of tired. It's not that late here at 10, but uh, I had a very, very late night last night. Guess when I went to sleep? Uh, well, your definition of late, my definition of later yeah, historically That's the joke. But... That's the joke. That's the joke. I went to sleep yeah. at 12. 12 30 a.m i was at a, i was in a neighborhood party the cops came twice um and we were supposed to be eating by like 7 p.m so i starved myself the whole fucking day and i only was able to eat by 10 so for three hours at the party i was very very hostile i was very hostile i was very angry i really really wanted to fucking eat i grabbed fucking i had to get chips from my house i had to go back to my house get chips bring them back yeah. Um, I'm, uh, well, I'm, I've been doing so, intermittent fasting and I've accidentally done an almost 24 hour fast because, because my window happens around dinner time because that's when I get home from, I get home late from work. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense to start my window earlier than that. So it's been like 23 hours since I ate. Yeah. And, and now, now I honestly feel like after, uh, I feel kind of like sickly after everything that I ate yesterday. Um, was it good at least? It was it was very good. It was all it was all uh Guyanese and Trinidadian food. Um uh it was you know noodles, rice, curries. Today there was like a, a little after party that I went to, took my cup of dal, it was a very good dal. Uh some like uh people around my block, they made it. Um, so that was nice. But I had I had uh there's these like very um <clears throat> deleterious uh cupcakes uh about like half an hour walk from me and i got i got a bunch i got like 32 of them because there's always like a bunch of people that show up to these parties so i was like let me let me just make sure everybody at least gets a cupcake and but like you eat one and it's like so it's so like overpowering uh and you, you always feel like so full afterwards but it was already past midnight and I fucking, I have to go to sleep by like 11 all the time. It was already past midnight. I was already drunk. I was high and I was like, fuck it. I'm already like crossed so many boundaries. I'm going to have a second cupcake. 
And then today they brought out a slice of cake. I had a slice of cake. So I feel very sickly, right? So I hope when I yeah. uh, wake up tomorrow, it's going to be, you know, a fresh, a, a fresh week for me where maybe I don't eat for like uh, two and a half days, right? Um, and, 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 feel, and feel better, right, after. Nice. Well, I'll, I then uh, I guess you should go 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 get some shut eye, Poppy. It sounds like you had a really rough day. Yeah, but but now like I I turn I turn down my 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 flux here, so like it's all been like blue light, and we've been talking. So now I'm amped up, and I'm supposed to be going to sleep soon. But I know I'm going to be like not going to sleep now because of this conversation, right? Whenever it gets too late, I'm always like tossing and turning and thinking about what was said, right? Yeah. So. Well, I, I'm also, uh, I, I got to work tomorrow and I'm sure I won't be able to go to bed for at least like two hours. Uh, and then I have done no laundry when, when I'm supposed to. So I'm going to have to borrow a, a pair of scrubs at work tomorrow, which I hate doing and which they, they make an annoying. So I hope, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope that's a painless process. Speaking of which, I didn't even shower today. That's how that's how fucked up I've been. Didn't even shower today. So now, you know. Are you an everyday shower? Twice a day, usually. Really? I just, I just, I just sweat too much, you know? And my hair like always traps sweat, right? So like I'm always, ha I'm always trimming my body hairs. Like I'm a very high maintenance guy. I've not met many males as high maintenance as I am. I have so many. I remember, I remember what, uh, when I was visiting Dan, uh, this uh, this was either in 2011 or 2013, uh, and we were like getting ready to go on a, on a hike. And I was like, I took a shower, and I was like, I was like, I was like shaving in the bathroom, and I was like doing my fucking ponytail. And he was like, Alex, we're just going on a hike. You're not gonna go get laid. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> All right, so thank you guys for uh, watching. Um, this has been Artifact number 21, also available on YouTube if you're going from the audio podcast, um, available on audio if you're listening to this on YouTube. Maybe next time Keith and I have uh, something that we record together, it's going to be it's going to be in person, right? So you could see like the bodily differential between us. Um so anyway, uh, thank you guys for watching and we will see you soon. Oh my God. Oh my God.